This is exactly right. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hello and welcome to That's Messed Up on SVU Podcast. I am Kara Clank. And I'm Lisa Traeger. We talk SVU true crime. We have celebrity guests, but up top, we chit-chat. We catch up. What's going on, Kara? <laughs> Not too much, Lisa. Um, I'm excited because you and I are getting back on the road very soon in June. And I just want to really quickly remind everybody that we're going to be in San Francisco at Cobb's on June 8th. We sold out last time, guys. Get your tickets. We had the best time in San Francisco. Um, then Tempe Improv in Tempe, Arizona on June 15th. Denver Comedy Works on June 25th. And we've got a big LA show at the Bourbon Room. The Bourbon Room is a hot comedy spot now. I'm seeing all these good comedy shows are on their Instagram. So guys, if you live in LA, it's a really cute club. They've got great little snacks and drinks. Come and see our show. And just to add the June 16th and 17th, I'll be in Phoenix, Arizona doing stand-up and then June 26th, one night in Denver doing stand-up. You know you want to do a double feature of TMU and Lisa. So go get your ticks. And that's all of our tickets are at thatsmessedoplive.com for our show. Amazing. Yeah. And I feel like in Arizona, we're going to jump in a pool. Yeah. Oh my God. You can also find us at a pool. (laughs) Okay. Wait. So a bunch of people have sent me this article. Did you hear about this woman who lives in Utah? She has three kids. Her husband died and she wrote a children's book about grief and she has recently been charged with his murder. Wow. Yeah. She gave him a fucking fentanyl cocktail. But how wasn't it not caught? Don't people know when something's fentanyl? I know it's really confusing. I don't understand. Like, basically, she said she brought him a Moscow mule in bed. (laughs) Wow. And that, like, she went to go lie down with one of her kids who was, like, having a nightmare. And then she came back and he was cold to the touch. And a medical examiner said that he died from a fentanyl overdose. He had five times the lethal dosage in his system. I don't know why the authorities, like, didn't immediately suspect her. I guess maybe they thought he like did drugs that was dosed with fentanyl or something. Like, cause fentanyl overdoses are so like common now. So then she wrote this book about like, wait, what is the book called? It's called like, Are You With Me? Yeah, it's called Are You With Me? And like, you know, she gave interviews about it and like told people like, you know, my amazing husband, blah, blah, blah. But then it's like, she apparently tried it days before And the husband said to a friend, I think my wife is trying to poison me. And then she did it. So my question is, what did he do? What did he do? Why did she kill him? Like, he must have done something. Well, she might have just wanted to write this book. Yeah. That's why. (laughs) (laughs) She couldn't just write a book about like a worm trying to achieve his dreams or something. Like she had to write a book. She had to kill her husband and write a book about it. Wow. 
Now you have to write a yeah, sequel. I think it's Munchausen's. I think it's Munchausen by proxy vibes. Yeah. Well, no, because I maybe poisoning is in the air because I saw something online where a woman got poisoned to death in her smoothies. He was, the husband was putting something in the smoothies. Yeah. And there's the old, like, the old um, antifreeze thing because antifreeze, like, it used to taste like Gatorade or, like, very sweet. So you would just, like, put it in Gatorade or put it in any sweet drink and, Not like, no anymore. one could tell. But they changed the taste of it. But, like, this girl, it's so crazy, too. This girl just, like, looks like a sorority girl and, like, it's just wild that she was, like, sourcing fentanyl. Like, she asked, Someone gave her hydrocodone pills and then she goes, no, I need something stronger, like some of the Michael Jackson stuff and specifically asked for fentanyl from somebody that she said a client needed it or something like that. Crazy, yeah. right? But everyone just helped her. Because I feel if like a weird looking dude was like, I need fentanyl for my, they would be like, you're going to murder your wife. Yeah. They just let her go. I mean, she killed him in March of 2022 and then she just got arrested in... May. So it's really... She didn't even get to party too long. But in that quick of time, she wrote a book. I mean... Yeah. She got it done. She got it done. Women, Women get can. things done. Yeah. <laughs> Murder, write a book. Listen, did I, I... I didn't know any crime stuff this week, but I did watch two shows in full completion this weekend. Ooh, what did you watch? I watched Jewish Matchmaking on Netflix, and then I watched Beef. With Ali Wong. Was I the one that told you about Jewish matchmaking? Because I texted you about it. No, maybe I was already into it. No, it, um, Tova had it oh, on okay. her Insta story. And I really didn't want to do anything. And I went, oh, a gift from God. And I put <laughs> it on and I just sat all day. And I do like her. I like her style a little more than Seema from Mumbai. If we're just wow. comparing Indian and Jewish matchmaking. Wow. Yeah, I think um, Seema's still a little too old world where it's like, you don't get everything you want. You gotta settle. You know, like, and this one seems a little more, like, open to meeting the people where they are. Mm-hmm. But one guy, I mean, one guy, it was just like he needed blue eyes. It's just, I don't know. But the girl was too good for it. I, I mean, it was great. I, I'm honestly pissed I don't have a season two immediately. That's my Oh, my gosh, flaw. I know. Um, but Beef is incredible. One of the best shows I've ever seen in my life. The acting is insane. Give Ali Wong an Oscar for a TV show. That's how I feel. <laughs> I and really want to watch it. She looks so good. I didn't I didn't know she was that phenomenal. I mean, it is insane. It's so good. I got to watch it. Yeah. And um, wait, there is an SVU alum in it. Who's Calvin's mom? Maria, Maria Bello? Yeah, she's in it. She's in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, we're sick. Who's Calvin's mom? Maria Bella? Like, I knew it in two <laughs> seconds. <laughs> Amazing. No, beef, it's, like, wild. And I watched Trixie and Katya watch it on YouTube first. And so I was talking to a friend yesterday about it, and he was, like, talking about the huge cliffhanger. Like, not cliffhangers, the huge moments that shocked him, but I already knew them going into it. And I was still on the edge of my seat, Tara. Like, uh, like, yeah. what's going to happen next? It was, it's like phenomenal. Is it like 10 episodes? Yeah, because honestly, 
every, towards the end, every episode, I was like, well, that's the last episode. And then there was more. It was like, so oh, cool. wow. I stayed up all night. I stayed up all night. <laughs> oh my God. You're like me and my damages era. Um, yeah. Damages I never got into, even though I am a Glenn Close fan. Oh, you should watch it. It's not too late. It's so fucking good. Oh my God. I was obsessed. What is um, it? Is it politics? What's damages? FBI? It's lawyers. lawyers. It's lawyers. Like high high, like, class action, like, high-level lawyers. But it's it's the first thing I ever saw Rose Byrne in. So, like, and she's, like, this young lawyer coming to it, and, and Glenn Close is, like, the fucking... It's got a bit of a House of Cards vibe, you know? Like, masterminding and, like, evil that you can't even comprehend, like, of people doing things for their own gain, and, like, it's wild. But I, ooh, love it so much. Um, oh, wait, how was, how was the strike yesterday? How was oh, the yes. striking? I, um, I... I'm not a member of the Writers Guild of America. I would like to be. Um, and my husband is a member. And we went to strike for what their very fair demands that they're asking for of these studios. And we went to Netflix. And it was kind of a great social event. I saw my friend from Drag Race that I haven't seen in a long time. I saw, like, just a bunch of, like, a girl that I sort of know that I walked with her for a long time in the picket line. And we talked about her last experience on her show. And... It was cool. Oh, Michael McKean was there. Do you, do you know you know who he is? He's like in a million things. Like he's in Better Call Saul and like he's in Spinal Tap and like all this stuff. And he's married to Annette O'Toole, who's like another like well-known actress. <laughs> I was picketing with my friend and he just goes to her because you walk by each other and he just like walked by her and went, I loved you in It, thank you. And like kept because she's in the original It. <laughs> and like, he was just saying that movie like terrified him as a child. So anyway, it was like, you get a, and they brought cookies. Like Annette O'Toole gave me a cookie. Like it was really, it feels really nice. Like everybody's really in solidarity. I will say it's week two. This is expected to go on for three months. I'm hoping that everyone will be as chipper when it's like the sun scorching July and we're all still marching outside of like Disney and Netflix, but. Well, guess what? So I look up this Michael McKean. Yeah. Guess what he's been in? SVU. Oh, wait. What SVU has he been in? Okay. So it's from 2012. Father's Shadow. Season 13, episode 13. Spooky. Um, But I don't even... I would have to click on it because that... Oh, it's with the, like, the ginger boy from Shameless is in it, too. He's a... It's, it's, the, it's the one with the country singer in it, too, isn't it? Lambert. What's, yeah, is it not the Miranda Lambert episode? Is it? It's he definitely like a, a producer. Yep, Miranda yeah, Lambert's in this one. Yeah, it's like a fame situation where he's like making people like take off their clothes or whatever for auditions and stuff, right? Like, yeah, yeah. <gasps> totally. Oh my gosh! Do we wow. get Michael? Do we try McKean? to get him when I see him on the picket line again? From um, the strike to the pod. Yeah. Oh my god. Wow. Anyway, it was really cool, and I hope everybody that's listening looks into like what the WGA is fighting for because honestly, you're talking about beef being such a good show. Like shows like this are not going to exist. If they start doing rooms of like three people and a com- and a fucking AI computer robot writing television shows, they're not going to be good anymore. And they're just trying to kind of like cut corners and basically get rid of TV writing in a lot of ways. And all the streamers are acting like we don't make any money. And it's it's insane to say that because I think we all know they have millions and millions. So that was fun. And we're going to get this show on the road. Yeah, guys, don't go anywhere. We got a good one. 
All right, today we are doing Asunder. We're taking it back to season two, episode seven. Liv's got spiky hair. This <laughs> episode came out December 1st of 2000. So we're in a... Uh, Honestly, the best year ever. Like, if I can go back to 2000, I would love it. Yeah, wait, what was... Oh, 2000 was a great year for me. I was on my semester abroad in Rome. I had the time of my life. Well, no, I was in high school. I wouldn't want to go back to being in high school, but I just mean in terms of like Britney Spears. Yes, the pre culture. Pre-9-11. Yeah. We just wanted to like dance. Well, I was young. I don't know. I don't know why yeah. I said that. I regret it. I don't have a strong case. I don't know. I think it was like a lot of things you like are from that time period because a lot of like your musical tastes and the things that you like develop at that time of your life. So it makes sense. Yeah, I just, um, I. <laughs> it's so funny to me that, like, when I was like turning 20 in Rome, like, drink it, you were 13. Like, it's so crazy to me. I know now, like, age differences doesn't matter, but I'm like, imagine when if I was like 20 and I like ran across you and was like, I'm gonna have a podcast with this 13 year old one day, but she <laughs> seems really fun. <laughs> yeah, you could have made money babysitting me. Yeah. <laughs> You would not have listened to me, I'm sure. So this episode's called Asunder. I just looked it up really quick and the it means apart, divided. And the example on Google is those whom God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. I think that might be about marriage. So that's probably where it comes from with this episode, which is wild. Okay, so we're covering this episode and it's crazy because it opens on a guy watching an episode of Jerry Springer. And as of this taping, Jerry Springer just passed away like last week. So yeah. And what's what I saw a lot less like posts than I imagined. It was like the least yeah. of any celebrity I've ever seen. I only saw a couple posts. Was it like a weekend or was it like, or was something else overshadowing it? Like I was surprised too. It didn't get like, someone just told, like my husband told me and, I, and, and then I don't remember anything else. Because we all grew up on him. Yeah. I went to go see Ringmaster in the theater and I remember it was one of the first movies I ever went to where we, me and my best friend were alone in the theater. We were like, this rules. And we were just like talking and like, you know, having fun during the movie because we could. But yeah, I paid money to see that man's movie. Like, yeah, nobody really talked about it. I guess in the influencer chart that's in New York Magazine, he's considered lowbrow and terrible. <laughs> I guess, you know, or, you know, like, I don't know if people saw, appreciate what he brought to the culture. I saw one meme where it was like <laughs> that he would just have like a Ku Klux Klan dude and a black dude just fist fighting. And then his <laughs> final words would be like, we all got to get along and give yeah. each other a chance. <laughs> it's like... The know. final thought. The what? final thought. That's where our postmortem comes from. So we got to give that to Jerry Springer. Yeah. Our final <laughs> thought. Our postmortem of our podcast is basically a Jerry Springer final thought. But um, um, the one that I remember that will never leave my brain is it was a couple and they love puking on each other. Oh my God. And the man came out and puked like green slime. It didn't look like puke. It looked like... Ghostbusters green ectoplasm, but like opaque slime. It just was like Ew. it, it looked, but he puked all over her. And I just that will I'm never sure it was leave fake, my brain. Right? I'm sure they gave him some kind of thing. Yeah, it didn't look like a like we know what puke looks like, and it was just way more smooth. We sure do, because my son just puked in the night last night. Ugh. So. <laughs> 
Um, the crazy thing is he doesn't wake up. He just... Um, Isn't that scary? Yeah, no, he he just was... I could hear him coughing. And so I went there to check on him and he had thrown up like it was dry, like it had been hours before. I don't know. It's terrible. Okay. So this, we open on yeah. this guy. Let's go from puke to domestic violence, please. Puke to puke. We're going from puke to back to Springer. So he's watching an episode called Wild Weddings. Uh, and like a woman comes out in a bridal dress and immediately starts fighting with a man. So that's definitely a, a precursor, like a foreshadowing of the rest of the episode. And then he hears real life Springer episode coming through the wall. He hears the voices of a man and a woman screaming at each other. Then he looks out the window where he sees the man and the woman taking their fight to the street. She follows him down the stairs and now we're outside with them. She's got a frying pan in her hand and she says, she can't wait till this guy, she goes, I can't wait till you die so I can spit on your corpse. And then she calls him a freak. And then she launches this frying pan at him that hits him like, right in the back of the head, like where the head meets the neck. And he's, and it's like the sound it's effect like is like- It's like Bugs Bunny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The sound effect is like thunk, like it's bad. And he's like, grabs his neck and then he turns around and his face is furious. So he runs after her. She looks scared. She starts running back up into the building. He catches her, grabs her by the hair and starts shoving her back in the building. They disappear into the building and all we hear is a scream from her when we cut to the SVU squad room. And I don't know Here, if we want to touch on this now or wait till later, but this guy's in another SVU. Yes. Yes. He oh, plays I have a it. little pedophile. Uh, well, not really a pedophile. I don't know how to, I don't know what he well, is. Well, I'll tell you both of them. I'll tell okay. you both of them. The actress is Amy Carlson. She's a regular on Blue Bloods for like a million apps. And she was actually a regular on the failed Law and Order trial by jury. She was like on all the episodes of that. So, and then the man is played by Nestor Serrano, who was also in the episode called Obscene, which you might remember as the Lewis Black Dana Delaney episode. But he marries a 16-year-old child star of the show he is directing. So, but he's also in a ton of other stuff like movies, TV, like you've seen him. He that man works. So though that's our two, our two leads of this episode. So we cut to the SVU squad room and Munch is explaining to a victim how important it is to preserve all the evidence and is trying to convince her to get to the hospital. When the camera pans around, we do see it is the woman from earlier, the actress Amy Carlson from the last scene. And she's like, So this bastard rapes me and you waste time. And it's like, I don't understand. Like, this is the procedure. Like, you have to go. Like, without proof, I don't know what you think is going to happen. I don't know why she thinks gathering evidence is a waste of time, but she is actually probably very traumatized. And Munch is like, if you'd be more comfortable talking to a female detective, and she said, I'll be happy to talk to anyone with a half a brain. So immediately, Munch and this woman are at odds. And um, she hates Munch from the jump. Munch says, there's five stages of grief. Try not to go through all of them at once. And she goes, cute. And then she tells Munch, I don't need SOP explained, which is standard operating procedure. She goes, I don't need SOP explained. I don't need a rape kit. And I don't need you to hold my hand. So she's pissed. Then why are you there? Yeah. She obviously knows cop stuff, right? So Munch is like, listen, Prior consensual sex does not matter. It doesn't matter if you're still in a relationship with this person. And then she admits, this is my husband, the person who assaulted me. And Munch is like, let's go to the doctor and then give us an address and we'll go pick up your husband right now. And she looks conflicted. And then she admits, he's a cop. His name is Sergeant Lloyd Andrews. He's in homicide at Manhattan South. Boom, take us to the credits. So it's interesting how it's like, we'll just go pick him up right now. But then him being a cop throws a whole wrench into the episode. Oh, so yeah. in, yeah, 
In the squad room now, everyone's filing into Daddy Cragen's office and Cragen turns to Jeffries. She's still hanging around. I thought she was gone by the beginning of this season, but she's still around. And Cragen goes, care to join us? And Jeffries is like super sarcastic and goes, I'd love to, but I have all these reports to file and coffee to make because she's been put on desk duty. Since if you'll remember at the end of season one in the finale, when they all got evaluated by Broadway legend Audra McDonald's, they got, all got psyche vowels and hers came back that she was like, you know, kind of engaging in risky behavior. And she admitted that she saw a perp, not a perp, a guy they liked for a, a, a crime. She saw him like at a bar and ended up going home with him. So they think she's engaging in this like self-destructive behavior. So she's been put on desk duty and taken out of the field. Cragen walks over and is like, I want you on my team, but only if you want to be here. And she's like, it's nice to be wanted. She is a sarcasm queen. And then she's like, gotta go. These aren't going to file themselves and Cragen looks like kind of stung. And so now we're in his office. Finn explains that Patricia Andrews, who's our, our blondie woman, she says her husband raped her in the, this morning. She's got a sprained wrist, but no other sign of abuse. And we see Cragen's fold-up cot is in the corner again, making an appearance. Like it is very um, there and there are things on top of it. Munch <laughs> um, is like, well, my partner forgot to mention that the like, alleged perp is a cop. And Finn's like, I didn't mention it because it's not important, at least not to me. And I love that. Finn, a king, as always. And he's new to SVU. This is like, this is maybe his seventh episode because it's he's only came in uh, season two. So Patricia's husband has 20 years on the force and has a high closure rate. And Benson's like, okay, well, I'm glad he makes the brass happy, but he's a rapist. And Munch is like, not so fast, alleged rapist. Munch is like kind of uncool in this episode. He's like acting like deny. He, he, he goes on to say like, basically denying your husband's sex is a breach of contract and calls it contractual abandonment. And I'm like, this is not a good take and a good look for you, Munch. And Liv is like, <laughs> not good at all. Yeah, I actually just got into a healthy debate. It wasn't real, like it didn't get dark or anything with someone who's like, but what is a wifely duty? Because I think that's all coming back on like Instagram and explore bait, like interviews oh, and of podcasts. that guy that also that that gross right wing guy, Stephen Crowder was like yelling at his wife for not being like not fulfilling her wifely duties. And I feel like everyone's been talking about that. And then I just went off and I was like, well, what are the husband duties? I'm like, no one is like fixing gutters and building spice racks. Like the men have flopped. The men are not bringing any husband duties to the table. And then the women don't want to fuck the men. And the men, it's Sandoval. Sorry to bring him up again, but it's like, <sighs> Ariana is telling you I need an emotional collection. I'm not really attracted to you right now. And he's just in a corner being like, she won't fuck me. And it's like, yeah. you're Al Bundy. Like, you're not doing the dishes. You're not cleaning. Yeah. You're not looking hot. You're not taking care of the kids. And then you want someone to want to fuck you? That seems crazy. If you want someone to fuck you, you got to spice it up. You got to make them want to fuck you. It doesn't you. even need to be that spicy. You just need to give, like, basic connection. Yeah, like, take a shower. in life. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. There but was an MI. It's just, like, dudes, like, not be, like, not getting their wives wet and demanding sex while not like, yeah, they don't want to fuck you. You're not oh, yeah. doing your husband duties. There's a lot more of that shit in this episode, as as you know, and oh. it's really gross. Like, like, well... Wait, what was the am I the asshole you were about to bring up? Oh, I was just going to say, there was a fucking am I the asshole. It's like, am I the asshole? I only shower once every two or three weeks. I don't think I smell, but people keep telling me I do. And I was like, men are, men are out. Forget it. Like, we're done with you guys. Like, I can't. Like everybody was like, bro, 
take a shower. Like it was incre- it was incredible. Well, because people are now letting you know that you smell. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought maybe you'd seen that. Now I get this, I get this Ask Aubrey Instagram where she just gets good Am I the Assholes? And they're always the most inflammatory ones. And so those are the ones I'm seeing. And they're I don't follow her. They're just in my feed constantly <laughs> on Twitter and stuff, which I have to get off of because it's a fucking nightmare. But anyway, so Liv is like to to munch. She's like, hey, dude, wife is property went or- out in 1980. 1980- or the idea that you want to fuck someone who's not into it. That's sick in itself. That they just have to give it to you. Like, and that would be well, how fun is that for enjoyable? you in some way. Yes. yes. How is that enjoyable at all? It's wild. Well, so, um, you know, my new favorite podcast, Stradio Lab, that I can't stop <laughs> talking about. Did I already talk about the Aaron Jackson episode is about like weaponizing oral sex is very straight to him. Because oh, they were saying, they're a bunch yes. of gay dudes and they're like, yeah, we will give or receive oral at any moment. And his theory is like, it seems like women hate giving blowjobs, but they'll do it on a man's birthday and the man doesn't mind that the woman hates it. <laughs> and then she's like, and then he's like, that seems weird. Yeah. And then he's like, and then it seems like if men love eating pussy, they're gay and must be beat up. <laughs> Like, I just was, you know how I've been watching, um, I've been watching uh, The Sopranos one episode at a time on yes. Delta. There's yes. a fucking episode of The Sopranos where one of the big guys is good at eating pussy and they fucking, he t- his girlfriend tells a couple friends and the word gets out and he fucking throws a cream pie in her face and breaks up with her because everybody found out he was good at going down on her. Like, yeah. oh my God. So it's just this funny episode of, but they were just like, I don't get it. Like, if you know your girl hates it, but that's part of it for you. It's just like, <laughs> what is straight culture? Just yeah. like, Stradio open your so legs. <laughs> and I don't care if you hate it. Like, and then you deny you guys are freaks. It's just all so layered and twisted. I don't, I don't even know. But we, I mean, we've, we're, you know, SVU aficionados. And even the episodes where it's like sex, like trafficked women that are chained to a bed that are drugged up, like, Guys are going yeah. to Tijuana and paying for yeah. it. It's like yeah. great. I don't understand. Uh, um, the like, I guess the misery is part of it for him. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is. I think we've found that the misery, yes. the power, it is part of it. Yes, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but another okay. another nice lesson from the, S- the SVU <laughs> universe. <laughs> yes. So Liv is like yelling at Munch and is like, "Dude, wife as property went out in 1984 when the law." realize that married women can say no. And she's referring to People versus Liberta, which is a, when the New York courts struck down the state's marital rape exemption. And so now husbands convicted of raping their wives could be sentenced to two to eight years in jail, the same as anyone else convicted of rape. And they joined 17 other states, including New Jersey, Connecticut, and California, who had already eliminated those exemptions. And at the same time, in that case, the court held that women as well as men could be prosecuted for rape, which is an episode we just did. So now, Cragen is like, let's talk to the wife and make sure she knows what the score is. And Finn's like, are you doubting her commitment or that it happened? Like, Finn is immediately the hero of this episode. Cragen's like, I don't know his side and IAB is going to be up our asses. So we better, you know, cross all our T's and dot our I's. And Finn says, I don't think his badge should cushion the blow. And Cragen's like, dude, have you ever fucked with IAB? No, then do it my way. And Cragen's like, go canvas the neighbors, get some info on the couple, and then Munch and Finn go to talk to Patricia again. So Stabler is like, 
like, if it turns out he did do it and we don't follow standard operating procedure, we're going to get buried in it. And Cragen goes, that's going to happen regardless. So now we're in an interrogation room and Patricia is smoking a cigarette and Munch is like, no smoking, ma'am. And then she blows it in his face and puts it out on her sneaker. <laughs> it's, it's kind of love it. They have her read the statement and then sign it. And they're like, where's your husband right now? And she goes, every day he plays pickup basketball with some cop friends before his shift. And Munch says- I thought you were about to say pickleball. And I was like, get the fuck out of here. No. Stop it. I don't think pickleball existed in 2000. <laughs> Even though now it's the talk of the goddamn town. Munch says he wants to hear her side of the story again. And she's like, why? And he's like, you better get used to telling your story. And she and she asks Finn if he's married. And he says, no, ma'am. And then she goes to Munch. I know you're not. No one would have you. And I love that. And then he goes, are you always this pleasant? And she goes, so you're saying I got what was coming to me? And Finn's like being very cool, has good bedside manner. He's like, ma'am, no one deserves what happened to you. You know, like, let's figure this out. And she explains, they've been married for five years. She's seen him get crazy, but never like this. They usually fight. They have makeup sex. She can't believe it got this bad. And then Munch is like, did he maybe think this was makeup sex? And she goes, I don't consider a chokehold to be play foreplay, detective. Munch goes, and a pot to the head turns him on. Like, everyone's acting like this pot to the head made it so, like, tit for tat. Like, you throw a pot at someone's head, you get raped. And it's like, not not a apples to apples here. So Munch is being a victim blamer again. And she's like, you guys aren't going to do shit. And she just starts to walk out. And Munch is like, if your story holds up, I'm going to go arrest him, cuff him, process him, and lock him up in a cage. I just want to make sure you know what's up. And she's like, what do you take me for? And then she just signs the statement. So she's obviously got her story straight and ready to, ready to go. Now, Benson and Stabler are over at the Jerry Springer guy's house. And they're asking him all about the Andrews. And he calls them the Springers, which I love. He goes, oh, you mean the Springers? And they're like, no, the Andrews. He goes, nobody knows each other around here. I, to me, they're the Springers. And I love that. And he's like, they're better than the show. They fight every day. The cops come, but then the husband pulls them aside and then they leave. He always wondered if he was paying the cops off. And then he describes the whole situation with her nailing him with the pan. And he's like, then he just turned around, snatched her inside the building. And he says, I didn't see or hear anything else. So, which is hard to believe because he can hear them through the walls. And if he was like, but I guess if he chokeholded her, like maybe she couldn't scream or anything. But anyway, in Cragen's office now, where two dudes walk in, it's detectives Santiago and Howard, and they're IAB, clearly. And one goes to shake Cragen's hand and he just leaves him hanging. And it's so good. He's just like, Hel can I help you? And Cragen's like, what's up? Is it my case or is it yours? And Howard's like, we don't do sex crimes. So Cragen's like, cool, then get the hell out of here. And Howard's like, we get you why you hate us. IAB brought down your mentor and I would hate us too. And apparently this is something that happened on a Law & Order episode called The Blue Wall where IAB took down Peter O'Farrell and Cragen was involved in that. So this guy goes, listen, IAB's different now. We've changed. And Kraken's like borrowing some sarcasm from Jeffries and goes, wow, that's comforting. And then the other guy goes, we're not here to grind your wheat. I don't know what that, that's not a good saying. and Farming uh, culture. Farm culture <laughs> always gets in there. They go, we just want SVU to take it slow with this case. You know, use kid gloves. Let's have some finesse. And Cragen's like, since when does IAB care about finesse? And then these two dickheads reveal their true asshole nature and they go, we marry them just so we can have sex available. How do you rape a wife? Keep in mind, the law like it, the law changed saying that marital rape is real 16 years earlier. And these fucking idiots are still like, how is that even possible? Like it's your wife. She's just a 
fucking piece of meat. And Cragen is like, oh my God, like he can't even believe these guys. So we cut to Liv exiting a bodega with coffees for her and Elliot. And Stabler fills her in that there's been four domestic disturbance complaints at the Andrews address, but no arrests. Same two unis every time, Clarkson and Powell. And these two are on a break. So they get in a car and they go hit up the diner where these two cops are having lunch. And as they get there, speaking of what you were saying about blowjobs, they get there just as this other guy is finishing a street joke and Olivia finishes the punchline. And the punchline is basically, the joke is basically like, the groom's mother says to the bride's mother, why is she smiling? And the bride's mother says, oh, because she just realized she never has to get on her knees again. And like Olivia finishes that punchline. And it's like a whole, I looked up the street joke. There's many different versions of it, but Olivia's acting like, I'm one of you. I love when I love jokes about blowjobs. Just kidding, I'm about to tear you a new one. And so they slide into the booth and she's like, what's up with, all? they're both like, what's up with all these domestics? And they're like, it's no big deal. We handled it at the scene. And Benson and Stabler are not letting them off the hook. They're like four domestics, that's three too many. And they're like, look, he's a cop. We did him a favor. And Benson's like, so you guys look the other way, no matter what. Is that in your cop manual, Stabler? Because it sure as hell ain't in mine. And they admit that Sarge and his wife fight loud and hard. It blows hot and then it's over. And the wife likes to throw shit. So that's what they get from this conversation with these guys. Stabler's now walking and talking with Craigan and Craigan's like, break it down for me. Like, how real is this whole thing? And Stabler's like, it's hard to say. They break up to make up. She's a bruiser. He might be a rapist. Craigan's like, well, the guy's not going to confess. And Stabler's like, well, let's let the ADA decide. And Craigan says, well, she might not have a chance. IAB wants us to flush this whole thing. And they say there's some other agenda on, or this could be coming back to bite us. And Stabler's like, well, let's interview the husband. Craigan's like, he's just going to lawyer up. His lawyer's going to, you know, he's going to get his IAB rep and he's going to turn him into a deaf and he's like, well, I just want to get a read on this guy before he gets wise to this whole thing. And so he basically tells Stabler, you can go do some unofficial digging, like not a full interview, but whatever. So Stabler shows up at the pickup basketball game and he's got a tank top on and he's ready to dunk. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really funny. One of the guys that is playing the game is Detective Danny Tatum. And we've seen him before. He's in that episode Countdown where, um, you know, it's like the Jim Gaffigan episode where, where the little girls and the parties and everything. And he's like, I just remember in that episode them being like, oh, you think we messed up back in Queens? Like, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, I do love Countdown. I thought it was one of the ones that I hate where it's like an old guy is dying and he's like, I, you need to solve the case yes. before I die. That's why I went, yeah. Ugh. We have 24 hours before the execution. We got to find out that last victim's location. Yeah, yeah, I hate those, but I love Countdown. Candy Corn. Yeah. That was a, Candy that's corn. a great episode. So. Yeah. The guy I take with the my, bad uh, teeth. Back. <laughs> yeah. So um, this guy has been in a few episodes uh, and he was like a transfer from Queens, maybe SVU to Manhattan homicide. So Elliot, like I said, tanked up, ready to shoot hoops. He introduces himself like he's not lying who he is. He says he's Elliot Stabler. He's SVU. And they're like, oh, tough gig. I heard they rotate you guys out every two years. And it's like, LOL, half of them have been in there for over two decades. <laughs> and then Andrews, who is uh, Lloyd Andrews, the main, the main, like, 
you know, a, alleged rapist here is like, oh, live victims are needy. It takes a strong cop to suck it up. And so he's kind of complimenting Stabler here. And then they start playing. Stabler's all over this guy, Tatum. And then Tatum shoves Stabler. And he's like, what the fuck? And the guy's like, no files on the blacktop, bitch. You can't take it. It's like stupid male posturing. And then they start again. Stabler's all over this guy. And Tatum just elbows him right in the nose. And it's a big smack sound effect like a punch. So Stabler goes, what did I miss? And like, he's truly bleeding out of his nose. And Andrews comes up and goes, he's trying to send you a message. And Stabler's like, I guess I don't speak his language. And he goes, don't you? And Stabler goes, why don't you spell it out for me? He goes, how about you ask me all the questions you want after the game? And Stabler's playing dumb. He's like, questions? And he goes, the rape, right? And Stabler's obviously not as slick as he thinks he is, just like <laughs> melting into a pickup game to get answers on a crime. So that's the end of act one. Now we're at the top of act two at Cragen's office. Stabler's got a black eye telling the, the gang what went down. And he says... He might have been telling me what I wanted to hear, but he seemed genuine. Like, immediately, everyone's, like, on the side of this guy. And Liv goes, oh, was that before or after his goon kicked your ass? And Andrews is like, and they were like, Andrews knew we were looking into him. And then everyone, like, Munch, too, is like, well, he saved the other eye. Like, everyone wants to, like, build this guy up. And they're like, so his partner was over-enthusiastic. Like, who cared, you know? And then Cragen's like, so all we got is this abusive woman crying rape. That's what Cragen says. And Liv is like, what is her motive for accusing her husband of this? And Finn is like, maybe a pending divorce. You don't have to split assets with someone when they're in jail. And they're like, there's no divorce papers filed. And Munch goes, yeah, she's waiting for us to get rid of him. And then she'll file. And then they get a phone call. Units are at the Andrews house responding to a, a report of assault with a deadly weapon. So now we're at their house. Cops are in the street. Like, this is like a huge, just like a block party. Like, everyone's in the street. The cops, the couple's fighting. There's an ambulance with uh, Andrews is in the back. Lloyd is in the back. His wife, Patricia, is being held back by a cop and she's threatening to cut her husband's pig heart out. And he's in an ambulance getting a hand injury treated to. And he calls her. He's like, shut up, you stupid bitch. And then she says... She goes, I will set you on fire in your sleep. And he goes, you better kill me or I'll do you without leaving a mark. So these two are like, and then she calls him a freak just like she did right before she threw the frying pan. But this time she lobs a policeman's baton that she grabbed off of the cop that's holding her back. She just lobs it at him, but there's tons of people around. So it's like, oh, it's wild. It's a wild scene. So Liv takes- But the writing is incredible. Pig yeah. hearts, leave a mark. I mean, it's good writing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Liv takes over as a cop is like wrestling Patricia to the ground and she's like, I got it, I got it. Like, you know, and she calms her down and screams, why isn't he in jail? And Stabler goes to Lloyd and says, he needs to come down to the station and answer questions. And he goes, I need a lawyer. And so now Cragen is getting yelled at by the two IAB dudes. They're like, you call this finesse? And then he's like, I'm fielding calls about authorizing an undercover op. What, what kind of Mickey Mouse club is this? It's like the undercover op where he played himself and went to play basketball, hardly. And Cragen goes, see, I actually hate that little black rodent talking about Mickey Mouse club. He goes, I'm more of a Dick Tracy guy. You get a decoder ring and everything. I mean, like the writing in this episode is so funny. Like everybody's fucking with each other, being so sarcastic. And the guy is like, the IAB guy's like, Cabot, you want to jump in here? And she's like, 
listen, charging him before we get a statement from him is premature, but I'm not going to make this go away like you want me to. But I suggest you two stop obstructing this unit or I'll file charges against you. And they're like, well, we're here only in a supervisory capacity. And she's like, not anymore. You've been updated. Skedaddle. Sashay away. So in the squad room... (laughs) The Andrews both get taken in, Patricia and Lloyd. In one room, we're going back and forth here now. In one room, Lloyd is like, I won't talk without my lawyer. And they go, okay, bye. And then he goes, well, on second thought, why don't we just put this all to bed so we can get back to work? That would be me. I would be scared that would be me. (laughs) Yeah, like after they make you wait an hour, you're like, fine, I'll talk. I gotta go. I just want to talk. But no, I think I think after this podcast, I know if anything, it's lawyer. You got lawyer for that lawyer. Yeah. I would not say, yeah, just lawyer. So they're like, your wife already told us what happened. Why don't you tell us, you know? And he goes, what did you, what did she say? And he goes, she said you raped her. And Stabler goes, before you deny it, let's go through the whole sequence of events. And Lloyd goes, fine. I've been working midnights for a while. I'm tired. I get home. She starts laying into me about having a side piece. And they're like, do ya? And he goes, yeah, so... So why would she, they're like, so why would she accuse you of rape? And he goes, it doesn't take a genius. And he continues like, it's always something with her. I don't love her. I don't, or I smother her too much. You figure it out because she's driving me nuts. <laughs> he sounds like Rodney Dangerfield. And they're like, it seems like it would be easier for you to divorce her than to rape her. And he goes, I did not rape her. Like he's adamant that he did not do that. Over to Patricia, who's telling Munch and Finn, she's like, he just came sauntering home like nothing happened. And Munch is like, why did you stay there? And she's like, where should I go? It's my house, my things. I did nothing wrong. And like, I'm obviously on her side. Like she, some people don't have anywhere else to go, you know? And it's like, we've seen that in other episodes where it's like, go to a shelter. It's like, shelters can be dangerous. There's like a lot, it's a lot of, it's difficult, you know? It's it's not as easy. It's not black and white. So then Munch goes, you cut him with a kitchen knife and threw a police baton into the crowd. And she's like, he scared me. I thought he was in jail. You said you were, would arrest him. What happened? And then back to Lloyd and he goes, they were fighting. Tempers were hot. He walked away. And that's when she threw this pan at him. They go back and forth between calling this a pan and a pot. It's a pan, but they're, they call it a pot sometimes. She He brought her in and started packing her bags. And he's like, the lease is under my name. And I wasn't going to let her run me out of my my house. And then she started screaming and threatening him with kitchen utensils. And then she came after him with a knife. This is what's confusing me because this is like, a, these are the two separate attacks. Like the kitchen, at, the knife attack happened at a different time of day than the pan attack. So I, it's very confusing the way they're describing this. But now he's talking about the second attack. Uh, she came after him with a knife. He disarmed her using a standard academy move. And he goes, she's crazy. She hasn't been right since we found out that she can't have kids. So that's a sad wrench in the story for her if that's what she wants. And Patricia said, that's when the marriage started to go south. They're like, what about divorce? And he goes, I love him. I want to go to counseling. He won't go. But they'll make him go after the trial, right? So it's almost like that's why she's going through this to stay with him, but make him get help. And it's like, if they convict, but I'm not even sure the ADA is going to charge him. And she's like, let me talk to her. She's a woman. She'll get it. He raped me. So she's really standing by her story. And then we cut to Lloyd right after she says that going, we made love. Not a fan of the phrase. And he denies the chokehold. He denies holding her down. He says, I wouldn't do that. I know I could hurt her. And he's like, besides, I'm the one with the battle scars. And Liv's like, but you do know how to do her without leaving a mark, right? Quoting what he just said like an hour earlier on the street. So now 
Cragen and Cabot are watching through the glass and Cabot's like, cut him loose. And Cragen's like, that sends a message that if a woman is raped by her husband, she better get beat up too. And Cabot's like, what do you want me to do about it? Like, and Cragen's like, book him and let a jury decide. And she goes, I don't even have enough to get this past a grand jury. Walk him. So now Cragen goes to the squad room and that asshole Tatum, the one who elbowed Stabler in the face, he's with a bunch of other guys and they show up to help their buddy because they're all pals and no one, none of them ever does anything wrong. And Andrew's whole squad is like standing there. And so the guy goes, are you arresting my sergeant? And Cragen's like, none of your business, bro. And then this motherfucker starts stepping to Cragen like he's not a captain. And it's like, I don't know, rank means a lot with these guys. Like you can't talk to a, a captain like this. And he goes, we watch out for each other. Maybe you forgot that riding a desk. And Cragen's like, I enforce the law and the only thing I ride are humps that break it. And then Stabler walks in with Liv and Tatum looks at Stabler and goes, feeling wood for my buddy? What? Are, what? I had to put the subtitles on. I was like, what is going on? I guess he's like, do you have a boner for like getting my friend in trouble or whatever? And he goes, Stabler goes, I am now cheap shot. And then he goes, is he arrested or not? And Cragen goes, he's free to go. And so they bring Lloyd out. And of course, just as they're bringing Lloyd out, they bring out Patricia. That's always what they do on this show. There's zero logistical timing. And I think uh, I love the name Patricia the more I hear you say it. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a cute name. Yeah. Trish. Patty. <laughs> um, <laughs> she, he points at her and says, I want my wife charged with assault. And she's like, Lloyd. And Cragen goes, do it. Uh, Patricia goes, how can he do this? And Munch goes, I don't know, but I'll ask him, count on it. So Munch is getting on her side. And then Lloyd and his jackass pack of bros all leave. So now Munch is in holding and they bring Patricia in. She's about to smoke a cigarette and she's like, well, I told Lloyd I would quit, but now's as good a time as any. And I'm like, ma'am, I beg to differ. This is not the time for you to quit smoking <laughs> while you're in a, the middle of a assault charge by your husband who raped you. I think you can smoke away, my dear. You can get, you can get quit later. And Munch is like, it's a bad habit, but some habits are worse. My wife has some bad ones. And she's like, I thought you weren't married. And he's like, he never said he wasn't married. You said he wasn't married because you were like, no one would be with you. <laughs> and he's like, my soon-to-be ex calls me asking for money a lot. They still fight, only now he's not there for the tantrums. And he goes, so you, she goes, so you bust my chops because I remind you of her. And he goes, no, I just don't like you. And she laughs and goes, at least you're honest. So I don't know what's going on. It's like, they seem like they now like each other and they're just shitting on each other to be nice. And uh, in, a, in a way that's friendly. And she's like, so what are you doing here? He's like, I came here to gloat. But then he's like, how are you holding up? She goes, I'm all right. I'm worried about Lloyd. And Munch is like, wow, never underestimate the generosity of women. She explains to Munch that Lloyd works midnight, so he doesn't have time to sleep. And she came home once and found him scrubbing his bullets in the sink with his gun laid out on a towel. So she obviously thinks that anything that his long hours could make him do something crazy. But he has time for a relationship with a second woman. So I think he's probably choosing that over sleep. And he goes, do you need anything? And she goes, yeah. Will you go check on Lloyd? Make sure he's okay. And Munch just like sighs. And the officer comes to get the woman and they gave her truly 90 seconds with Munch. I guess that's what the visit time is at this at this jail. But um, now we're in court for Patricia's assault charge. She pleads not guilty. Cabot doesn't ask for bail. She says, ROR is fine. They're like, oh, very compassionate, uh, Alexandra or whatever. And the judge thinks... Cabot's being a little too generous and he overrules it and asks for a $10,000 bond. So this sounds like a man who's like, hates women too. I mean, like the ADA is not even asking that she doesn't think she's a danger to anyone but her husband. So let her out. Why would she be, why would she have to pay or do bond? 
So Cragen goes to meet with some dude. We don't know who this man is. He tells them that someone in their, in his unit is filing a discrimination suit with the department. Duh, it's Jeffries. So they want to see if Cragen can get her to drop it. And the guy, and Cragen's like, she's really angry. And I really had no idea how angry until this moment right here. He says, Don, it's not personal. She didn't name you in her suit. She just wants back in the field. And Cragen's like, well, that's a problem, sir. And we can't fold on the issue. So talk to her as a friend. If that doesn't work, Cragen says, he goes, make it go away, Captain. So all these cops in this episode are just trying to get SVU to make shit go away. So Munch now is walking into Cabot's office and goes, guess who just paid Patricia's bail? Her husband, Lloyd. He's like, I smell a recant. Now Cabot wants to charge him because she's like, he had her arrested, then paid her bail. That looks suspicious. I can sell that. And Munch goes, I didn't know women got into whizzing contests. Can you not say piss on NBC? Because whizzing Whizzing contest doesn't sound as good as pissing contest. Oh, you're right. But whizzing is more like fantastical. (laughs) It's like such a silly word. It's like when you pee from a cloud or something. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it would be a good wordle word. Is it W H I Z Z? Well, when is I too many was letters. W H I Z Z I N G is whizzing. I think whiz might be W H I Z. But my dad used to say that to us all the time. He'd go, "Can you guys go take a whiz? Everybody go take a whiz." Like before we would get into a car on a car trip, and I would say to my mom, "Make him stop saying that. It's disgusting." Like I didn't want to hear him say, "Go take a whiz." Like I felt I was like, it, "You're treating me like I have a penis, and I don't like it." <laughs> but. Anyway, I didn't know whiz was gendered. It's not in my, I was like eight and I didn't like it. I I didn't like the way it sounded. So Cabot says, bring Patricia in. Let's clear the air. And so now Patricia and Cabot are talking and Cabot's like, did anyone threaten you? And Patricia's like, no, I just don't want to go through with it anymore. And she's wearing a little faux Burberry uh, shirt and uh, which was very big around that time. I think I had a faux Burberry skirt and, uh, she goes, well, well why our did you friend t- Lauren has this horrific story. Not horrific. It's LOL. But that, you know, her parents got her a Burberry scarf and we're like, it's real. And she's like, are you sure it's real? And they're like, it's real. And then she went to school and everyone's like, it's fake. And it was oh, fake. No. <laughs> and she was just like, why wouldn't you just tell me it was fake? You guys lied to me. I mean, yeah. So it was like a big issue for her and her child. I had a fake one too. I had a fake scarf too. Yeah, that was a hot time for that pattern. Oh, poor baby. So Cabot's like, well, then why did you change your mind? Like, what's going on? And the and she's like, my husband could go to jail for a misunderstanding, a petty marital spat. I can't live with that. And Munch is like, this is a real change of tune after singing the, quote, he raped me song to anyone who would listen. And she's like, I was mad. And then they go, does this have to do with him dropping the assault charge? And she's like, he's a good guy. And they're like, you said he was an arrogant jackass who put you in a chokehold and took what he wanted. <laughs> and she goes, he apologized for that. And she's like, all I ever wanted for him to do was put himself in my place. This is like what you're talking about. Like women just want men to like listen to them, kind of empathize with them, have like more of an emotional connection. Not like what Sandoval did in that episode after Ariana lost her dad and goes, I know we keep bringing this back to Vanderpump, but it is relevant. She lost her dad and she's like, I just really need you here with me right now. And he's like, babe, I love you so much. And I'm so sorry for what you're going through. But the guys like rented trucks and we're going to like do bulldozers and stuff. Can I please go to Vegas? Like, that's the, that's the emotional connection that you're missing. You know what I mean? Well, even this current season, her grandmother just died and he didn't go with her to Florida. Like, he stayed to continue an affair. Yeah. And go get 
sandwiches with Schwartz. It's just, um, it just seems like women are constantly changing and doing things to please what men want. And they are unwilling to be like, oh, her needs are equal to mine. Yeah. Listen, have I gotten involved in the comments on the shade room? I have. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever your views on equality about women and men are, like to me, I was writing, I was like, that's irrelevant. I'm like, it doesn't matter if you think they're equal, but like both people get to, feel good. I don't yeah. know. I just like, it just seems so weird that like one person in a partnership's feelings are just irrelevant to all decision-making. It just, yeah, I don't I mean, get it. This is a woman who is in an abusive relationship. She's just found out she can't have children pretty recently. And her husband is cheating on her and gaslighting the fuck out of her saying that he's not. And so, he's a police officer. Yeah. It, yeah. So, like, I'm on her side kind of no matter what. Like, I know we didn't see what happened, but she's she's got my vote. And she's like, all I ever wanted him to do was put himself in my place. He's never said I'm sorry about anything. And that's like a huge trigger for me. People that don't say I'm sorry. I have a parent who does that and I really fucking hate it. You, I say sorry to my kids like all the time. I'm like, even if it's something stupid where they're like, you push my, Rosie today goes, you push me into the table. I didn't push her into a table. And I go, I'm sorry if I did that. I didn't mean to, you know, like I'm just like apologizing constantly so that they know that apologizing is like something that doesn't mean you're weak or like less than, you know? Sorry, I'm going off on a personal tangent about apologizing. I know, I am too, constantly. Like, I, I forget, like, some, yeah, I forget that this is the case. She did throw the frying pan, JK. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> she did throw the frying pan. And, he, and violence isn't the answer, but it's like, you know, it's like when people were talking about, I mean, I don't want to bring up Johnny Depp and Amber Heard again, but people were like, oh, she was abusing him. And it's like, there is always a more powerful person in a relationship. And he is the more powerful person in this relationship. So like, it's not equal abuse, you know? A people, I thought initially when I said something about the her Depp stuff, I was like, I feel like there's abuse on both sides. And then many people pointed out to me that, that's not possible when there's a higher level person in the relationship with more power. And that's true. And in this case, it's this man. She goes, this was genuine. He said, sorry. And he and they're like, what did he say? And she goes, he said, I'm sorry I raped you, Patty. That was unforgivable. And to, and to give him another chance. And she's like, we're starting over. He's trying to feel my pain for the first time. And they're like, she's just like, you can't make me change my mind. I love him. Munch is pissed. And he's like, he admits it and you recant. And Munch says, that's not love. That's psycho. And he, she says, I'm not crazy enough to lose my husband because you want to believe in me now. She leaves. I mean, she's giving Munch shit because he wasn't originally, like, you know, on her side. Cabot's like, I can charge her with false police report, but I want to charge her with felony assault to force her hand a little bit. And they're like, I don't think Lloyd is going to refile the complaint just to please you. And they're like, what if we find a witness to the attack? So now we're back to our Springer guy. He said... I heard them fighting and I called the police. I didn't see anything. But then he finds out that Sergeant Andrews won't find out that he talked. And so he's like, okay, I, I, he admits like she had a knife and she did cut him. Like I saw that part. So now Cabot is meeting with Patricia and her lawyer. 
and charging her with assault too for cutting her husband. And Cabot's like, I got the knife, the prince, and a witness. That's three years in Bedford Hills and it's not the country club it sounds like. And they're like, whatever happened to compassionate Cabot from a few, uh, you know, from the few days ago. And they're like, she said, well, the motive for the assault was fear of reprisal. She recanted, so that's out. And so was my compassion. She goes, I'll bump it down to assault three. That'll shave 18 months, but I want a conviction for rape in the first degree. I'll only get that if your client is in front of the grand jury. She goes, this is blackmail. Patricia says that. And Cabot goes, no, it's the law. And so now Benson and Stabler walk into Manhattan South and in front of all of his cronies, they arrest Lloyd. They give him the courtesy of letting him step outside, not cuffing him in front of all of his, uh, and reading him his rights in front of all of his guys. He surrenders his gun. His dumb, dumb Tatum tries to yell at them and lives like, can you get out of my way, pig? Thank you. And then um, that's the end of Act 3. At the top of Act 4, Cabot walks into court as they're reading the charges against Lloyd. Rape in the first degree, sexual misconduct in the first degree, sexual abuse. She asks for $50,000 bail and there's a huge reaction from the galley. They're all like, oh, it's so much. And Petrovsky is like not having it. She's like, everybody shut up. You know, she's like not here for all the noise in the courtroom. And then his lawyer is like, he's a respected cop. Like he should get ROR'd. Cabot's like, we don't want to send the message that cops get special treatment, but Petrovsky is not having that either. She goes, save your button pushing for trial. We know that she loves to spar with Cabot a little bit. So she grants ROR. People ask for an order of protection and that Lloyd surrenders all his weapons. And she goes, that's fine. And then she goes up to the defense attorney for Lloyd and goes, let's talk. She offers sex abuse one, three years. He laughs. He's like, I'm going to win. I've got a winning hand here. Bye. And then he said, all you've got is a bitter wife. Put her on the stand. The recant goes in. So do the physical attacks. Why are you fighting this? And Cabot goes, because he did it. He doesn't deserve freedom or a badge. And then the guy goes, oh, when did he confess? And she says, a few days ago to his wife. And he's like, that's privileged. He's basically like, girl, you've got no case. And then he drops the bomb that they're going to do a bench trial, not jury. And it's like, uh-oh, is Petrovsky a cop lover? Let's find out. Cabot looks stung by that. He goes, let's drop this and send the kitties to counseling. She refuses. And he hands her a hanky and goes, for the egg on your face. And then there's a lot of shade in this episode, sarcasm and shade. Munch is on the stand testifying that Patricia wanted to drop the rape charges, that her husband apologized sincerely for raping her, and that was the first time in the marriage he had ever apologized. And it is not Petrovsky. It is a different judge. It's not our beloved Judge P. It is Judge Kevin Beck, and he's been in a bunch of eps in seasons one and two, um, including Limitations, which we did cover, which was the one about the statute of limitations. So the defense is claiming that the apology is privileged, but because it's because it's between two spouses. But the judge says, no, she related to a third party, Munch, which means privilege goes out the window and it's hearsay, which is a win for Cabot. So now Patricia is on the stand talking about the pan that she threw. She said, it wasn't still hot. I wasn't trying to hurt him. It's like, you did, it's a very heavy pan and you've got a good aim. And she she says, back in the house, after throwing the um, pan, she kept fighting with him. She hit him a few times. He pushed back. And then Cabot asked point blank, did he rape you? And she says, she doesn't know. But then Cabot reads her back her statement and she's reluctant. Like you can tell she doesn't want to be testifying. She still feels the way she did before. And then um, she admits to the defense attorney that she recanted and that a deal is in place for her testimony in the assault charge. And the guy goes, so then why are we here? Objection, withdrawn. He does one of those little things where the judge heard it, even though 
it was object, like objected to and withdrawn. Cabot goes, didn't you drop the rape charges after your husband dropped the charges against you? And Patricia goes, that's not how it was, you bitch. <laughs> it's <a> really <laughs> great. That's a great moment. Cabot's face, Cabot looks stunned. The judge goes, watch your language, ma'am. And then she's like, didn't you have a change of heart after a long conversation with your husband? And then the judge is like, you better answer, bitch, or you're going to be in contempt. And she admits, yes, I did change my mind after this long conversation. So now Lloyd is on the stand. He goes, we've been married five years, mostly pretty happily, but lately it's been hell. His defense attorney says, she's the batterer. Why are you protecting her? And he goes, I love her. I just couldn't see her get locked up over something that's my fault. And then he goes, she throws pans. She sliced your hands. How was it your fault? He admits to not being the best husband cheating, not coming home, being a huge fucking gaslighter. The defense attorney goes, I wouldn't either about coming home. And it's like, fuck you, dude. He just admitted he's a bad husband. And you're like, who would come home to this broad, this nagging ball and chain? It's like, he's a bad husband. What are you talking about? Before Cabot can even object, he withdraws. Like she goes to take a breath to object. And he's like, withdrawn, like he knows. And he asks, did you force your wife, put her in a chokehold, use excessive force? He says no to all of it. Why would she accuse you then? He says, I promised to cut off a year-long relationship and I didn't. And she found out and I've, st I've since stopped seeing her. I love my wife. And he says, why would you apologize for a rape if you didn't do it? And he goes, she can't let anything go. She's gotta be right. I would just rather lie than fight about it. I just want some peace. That's all any husband wants. It's like, men are so fucking lame. And then it's Cabot's turn. And she goes, didn't you tell her that you could do her without leaving a mark? And he kind of tries to deny it. And Cabot's like, let me remind you that I have about a hundred witnesses who heard you say that. And did you threaten her bodily harm or didn't you? And then he screams, that heifer told me she was going to torch me. What the hell was I supposed to say? And he, she goes, that heifer is supposed to be the woman that you love. Boom. Does not look good. Cabot walks down back to her chair like she's kind of nailed him. So now this defense attorney, the guy with the hanky, comes back with his tail between his legs to Cabot and he goes, sexual misconduct and he's out of a job. And Cabot's eating a sandwich and drinking a generic diet cola that looks just like a diet Coke. And she goes, don't be ridiculous because now clearly she's winning. And the guy's like, come on, these people don't belong married. We can all agree on that. And Cabot's like, that's not my problem. And he's like, you really railroaded him in there for what he said in the heat of the moment. Got me thinking about fights with my wife, what people might say. Sometimes I want to kill her. And it's like, Jesus, like you're just saying that out loud. Like I get furious at my husband and I'm never like, I would like to kill him. You know, I don't have never said that to anyone. And Cabot goes- But also it's added like when you do have a gun and you do have strength yes. and you're a police officer, like saying I want to kill you doesn't just seem like hyperbole or in the yeah. moment. Like it when you're washing your bullets- Right. There's your gun just laid out. The threat seems more real to yes, me. Yes, you know? for sure. And Cabot goes, well, if she dies, you've got a problem. Like you just admitted to me that you want to kill your fucking wife sometimes. But anyway, she goes, D felony still on the table. Three years, he'll be out in one. And he, the guy goes, yeah, but he'll be a sex offender. Like that's not going to happen. And she's like, okay, bye. And he steals the pickle off of her lunch plate, takes a bite and walks out. The audacity the gall, the gumption. So now we're back to Cragen dealing with the Jeffrey situation. He has called her into his office and he's like, this isn't anything official. It's just you and me. And he's like, have you thought about this? She's like, oh, is this about my lawsuit? And he's like, have you thought about like 
this completely, like all the politics of it, the stink it's going to leave on you. And she's like, the only thing on my mind is the presumptuous attitude about my private life. Back to, you know, everything that came out in that psych eval that I explained earlier. And he's like, this unit isn't like other units. You know that. And she's like, well, when it hit the, all I know is that when it hit the fan, you ducked. Like she doesn't think Cragen had her back. And he's like, I don't agree with their conclusion, but I do agree that you need help. So he doesn't agree that she needs to like be off the force or benched or anything. He's just like, before you get back in the field, you need some like counseling. And she's like, what does my personal life have to do with my work or the way I do it? And he's like, to me, it's the equivalent of you trying to eat your gun and I can't let that happen. And she goes, well, I guess we have nothing left to talk about. And she walks out. And back in court, the judge is ready to deliberate. He admits that spousal rape is real, but how does the law determine if a rape actually occurred? And he said, unfortunately, it cannot save corroboration or grievous injury. So he finds the um, Lloyd not guilty on all charges. Wild. Like we all thought Cabot was winning, but that's maybe a jury would have sided with her. But the bench trial, the judge says, we can't prove this happened. Munch says, what a waste of time. And Cabot disagrees. She's like, I'm the only ADA to get spousal rape past a grand jury. She's like, I might not have won, but I've changed the climate so someone else can. Then we cut to the Andrews, Patricia and Lloyd just passionately making out in the courtroom. <laughs> like full soap opera. And it's like, I guess you forgot he called you a heifer the day before in open court. And Munch is like, I guess you proved also that women are still chattel. And then Cabot goes, only if they want to be. And we cut to Cragen at the final scene of the episode going into his office. There's a gun and a badge on his desk. The camera pans over and we see Finn sitting there. And Cragen's like, this is a little premature. I thought a hot shot narco narcotics guy like you would be good for at least 60 days. And it's like, try 23 years. And he's like, they're not mine. Jeffries didn't want to leave her gun unattended. And so Finn goes, I'm sorry. And Daddy Cragen looks very sad. Finn leaves. Cragen looks out onto the empty squad room that has one old man working in it. We've never met him. And uh, Cragen just goes, me too. And then that is Dick Wolf. Well, because I wonder if at this point in the season, Ice-T even knows he's going to be a regular forever. Yeah, be you know, forever, like fully. Yeah, who knows? But thanks for sticking with me on that one, guys. I know it was a lot of dialogue. Like, there's not a lot of like action in this one. It's a lot of like, he said, she said, because I think that they thought in the year 2000, they were like, let's do this really, like there is another episode of He Said, She Said, the, the Shannon Sossaman one that they've done. But I think here they're trying to do it first and like, well, what 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 is true? Like, who knows? And it's like, but now, I don't know, through the through the lens of like everything we've learned about domestic violence in the past like 20 something years since this episode aired, I'm like, no, this woman is in an abusive relationship. We got to get her out of there. Um, but I think the show thinks they're they're presenting some kind of like, who knows, could be anyone kind of argument, you know? So anyway, we'll be right back after these messages with Lisa taking us through some true crimes. <laughs> We are back, and this is the Dennis White domestic violence case. What is wild about this is, like, he, this guy did have, like, we'll, we'll get into all of it. I'm just curious in terms of how connected to Asunder, because 
this stuff happened in 1993 and 1999 with this man, but he is a police officer and nothing, he was never charged, convicted. There was never anything that happened. All of this came to light in 2021 where he got a promotion to police commissioner and then it was taken away from him because everyone's like, you're a domestic violence abuser. So I wonder if the amazing writers knew about this like small Boston case or if once this came back out, the people on the wiki were like, it's based on this. Like, I wonder. Well, I mean, it did happen in 99 and then but in there was the episode no news. came out in 2000. But there's no articles or new. It was like internal investigations. It wasn't like the Boston Globe was like, police, you know, he, nothing ever happened. He was found, IAB never found anything. Oh. So I am just very curious. So maybe we'll talk to Neil Bear when yeah, he comes back. Find out how they got to that. F yeah, figured all this out. But it is um, very interesting in terms of the, if we can say he said, she said without any, you know, bad messages. Okay, so, so yeah, this is pretty recent, like a lot of the, you know, 2021. So this guy, Dennis White, was sworn in as, a bo as the Boston Police Commissioner in early 2021, which is wild because I thought um, accusations hurt men's careers. So it's wild that he was yeah. able to continue being a cop and become commissioner with well, these because accusations. It never, because it never went anywhere, I guess. He got it flushed the way that the IAB guys wanted to do this. Yeah, but they keep even tricking women where it's like, even an accusation can ruin a man's life. Right. And it's like, I just, I've never seen an example, ever. I've never seen yeah. an example of a man losing everything with an accusation. Ever. Yeah. I mean, Johnny Depp lost one movie role. Yeah. He still got to do perfume ads. I mean, the Jonathan Major <laughs> stuff that's happening right now. Oh, yeah. I guess race does play a huge part. And this yeah. is a black man in this. Uh, Dennis White is a black Dennis man. Dennis White is a black man. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, he becomes police commissioner. And then allegations from years ago come up and he was put on pause. Um, after... <laughs> Put me on pause. <laughs> so that's from Bravo for those who don't know <laughs> why Kara started cackling. Sorry. <laughs> but uh, no, I put it there on purpose, but <laughs> just in case people are confused why it brings us so much joy, it's that. Uh, but he was only the Boston Police Commissioner for two days before he was kicked to the curb on pause. Um, he, and he had worked in the police department for 32 years. So he was a 32-year veteran of the force. And this was all unearthed and brought to light by the Boston Globe, who inquired about allegations of domestic violence from 1999 with his former wife. And this was part of the Boston Globe. Um, they were doing a series of investigations into the Boston police. So there was like tons of articles and it was just like an all-encompassing giant investigation that they were doing about inequality and, you know, cops being a mess. And the Boston Globe, who famously did Spotlight, like what, what Spotlight was based on with the Catholic Church, like they are very good at like this investigative kind of like expose stuff. Wow, I didn't put that together in my head. Yeah. So I think like them going after the police department, the police department better be fucking like worried because they find shit. Yeah, I never watched Spotlight, but I remember I went to like a friend's Oscar party um, and all the foods were like based on the movies. People like to do that. And for Spotlight, it was Fruity Pebble Rice Krispie Treats in the shape of crosses. Oh my God. <laughs> 
So shout out. (laughs) Shout out to that fun party. In quotes, uh, this is bigger than the administration's failure to properly vet a candidate to lead our police department, Andrea Campbell, who is a city councilor, said. She continues in a statement that was quoted by the New York Times, originally from the Boston Globe. The systemic lack of accountability for wrongdoing and transparency in the Boston Police Department is a trend. I don't think this is anything new to us, but Mm -hmm. thought I would put that in there. And then his former wife, also a Boston police officer. Oh, interesting. So there's, it's different because there's not the same power dynamic necessarily. I mean, there probably is still a power dynamic, but not the same civilian versus cop as in the show. Yeah. Um, And the couple were high school sweethearts. They married in 1981. And then they had two daughters together. They separated in 1995, divorced in 1999. But that divorce was not finalized until January 2001. In May of 1999, court records show that White's ex-wife had a restraining order against him while they were still married. So again, before the divorce was finalized. And it required White to leave his home, stay away from his wife and children, and surrender his service weapon. She said that he had threatened to shoot her, slept with a gun, and physically abused her and made her very scared, according to the Washington Post. The wife to WBUR, which is um, a Boston NPR channel, said that he pushed her into sexual situations she did not want to be in. He would disable her car so she couldn't leave the house. And she does admit to fighting back and getting physical, but that she was never the first to throw a blow. She said that she became very afraid of him after he told a mutual friend that he wanted to shoot her. And this is why I said it while you were doing the recap of the episode is like, yeah, there was a difference. I think you should never threaten. Like, those are bad words. You shouldn't be like, I'll fucking kill you. But when someone does have a gun and like, knows how to hide evidence. I don't know, like a police officer, the the threat goes a little higher. Or if you're yeah. just like a man saying, I'll fucking kill you to a woman. But I don't know. Yeah. She also alleged that he threatened their 17-year-old daughter by telling her, don't come upstairs and startle him, um, him because he sleeps with his gun under his pillow. So, cool guy. Calm. Chill. <laughs> so he said he was just joking about shooting his family. And we need to get a sense of humor. White was never charged and he denied, denied, denied. But he did admit that him and his wife fought a bunch and it sometimes escalated to physical contact by both parties. But it's like you just denied hitting your wife, but then you just admitted that it got physical. Yeah. So there's a lying to me. It's You can't say you've never hit her and then say we both hit each other. Like it doesn't yeah. make... Then why are you denying it fully? So I don't really trust this guy. Um, His daughter in her official affidavits did say that her mother was physically abusive to her and her father. And that one time um, she punched her so hard that she had trouble breathing and that she threw a lamp and a TV at her husband. The daughter also said the mom criticized her for not cleaning the house good or quickly enough, which is funny to me. I know it's not funny, but... (sighs) It's just like, I don't want to clean either. Uh, But she did detail a lot of emotional and physical abuse at the hands of her mother. The mother admitted, again, WBUR, um, that she did discipline and spank her daughter. 
So I don't know. The mom does admit again to this NPR channel that neither of them are innocent in the relationship, but she believes that he should not be able to keep his job. So she has come forward and said, we both suck. He, I think, is in full denial of anything. Like throughout this all, you'll see it's just like, an excuse for everything, a denial of everything, no responsibility in any way. You could at least be like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have threatened to shoot my daughter. You know what I mean? Like, he can't even do that. It's like, he really can't in my research that I found. So he also admitted um, to getting physical with his niece, which happened in 1993, but he said it was in self-defense. How are you a police officer and you're constantly threatened by the women in your life where you need to physically assault them. Yeah. So that's like another thing where I hate with the police where they're like scared of every black teenager they've ever seen in their lives, but yet you're a hero. Like, I don't get it. Like, you can't say that you're heroes and you demand respect and then constantly be scared and say self-defense against children. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. You can't have both. Are you a scared little sissy with a gun under your pillow? threatening your niece and daughter, or you should be police commissioner and you're a leader and a hero. But, yeah. What's the, what's this? What's the circles? The Venn diagram. They do not <laughs> touch, okay? <laughs> the fight with his niece ended up in a report in the Internal Affairs Division investigation. Um, the allegations came up September 1993. The fight was over $10 that the niece owed White. The niece said that White punched her and threw her down the stairs and pushed her out the front door. He denied all of this and said the niece charged him and he struck her in self-defense. Again, shouldn't you as an officer know how to like contain someone without pushing them yeah. down the stairs? Like yeah. how to arrest a, a wild... I've seen cops. To you subdue know? a person yes. non-violently. Yes. Yeah, so... Okay, so he admitted to not only pushing her, he also admitted to striking her with a full swing of his arm and an open hand. So he admitted that, but then (sighs) denies everything. It's just like, it's kind of a mess. It just sounds like this whole household is also violent. Like just the mom is, they're both violent. Like like it's, it's a violence, which I'm sure comes from childhood and is like a history of a cycle that never ends. It's, it's tragic really, but. This guy's not good. Both White and his niece reported the incident to police and the niece obtained a protection of order against White for one year. The wife had all of the abuse documented in a diary that she gave a relative and then, and the relative told this to investigators. And in quotes, the wife said to the relative, if anything happens to me, I want you to have this diary. If anything happens to me, it would be Dennis. Wow. So a witness told police they had seen the ex-wife with a busted lip, scars, cuts, and scratches from fights. Another witness said that her whole demeanor changed if White would look in her direction. And another witness said that she told her about specific instances of abuse, including allegations that White burned her hair, put her face to a stove, and stepped on her face. Jesus. A witness also said that he was very controlling and abusive and that the wife did fight back. So these are um, just handfuls of witnesses that were a part of this investigation, internal investigation. Police abusing spouses is not rare. 
Um, one study found that 21% of officers self-reported abusing an intimate partner. That is just those that self-report, not total. It's definitely twice that, yes. if not more. So in 1991, a report presented to the House of Representatives estimated that law enforcement is involved in a rate of 40% of domestic violence. The police involved in domestic violence cases are at a much higher rate than the general public, yet officers are not held to the same standard of accountability as non-law enforcement offenders. White's ex-wife complained often that her case was not being taken seriously by the department. Internal affairs found that he had neglect of duty and unreasonable judgment, but determined White had not broken any laws. The department just had no records related to the allegations, according to this report. DV and law enforcement families is also unique because there are specific risk factors that create barriers for victims seeking safety. For example, I didn't even think about some of these. Like, I thought I was pretty well-informed about a lot of stuff. But, you know, like, officers learn specific skills, how to command authority and control situations on the job. And when they do this shit to their intimate partners, that can cause, um, like psychologically terrorizing and physically violent situations. They also have access to firearms, which I keep mentioning, and they have increased stress on their jobs. So it's just like a very dangerous combo for their partners. And also partners, um, like they don't know where to turn to help if their partner is in law enforcement. That's kind of obvious. But also like a lot of shelters are private, like the addresses, but police might have location information to shelters that are not known to private citizens. So the cops have inside scoop to services yeah. and that endangers victims more. And I did yeah. not even think about that ever. Oh my God. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And like, even if you're not directly looking, you can like send a friend like, oh, we're looking for a, a, a woman. Like, you know, yeah. That's scary. Because I remember um, in my college days when I volunteered at a shelter, like all donations went to a church. Like the address was not given to anyone. Most of our training for the phones was like, do not tell anyone where you are. And like secret. But yeah, the cops fucking know. And yeah. also cops know other cops, the DAs, the judges. Like it is really an intertwined thing. So just a little aside to fill you in there. So finally, yeah. we're up to June 2021. Boston Mayor Kim Janey made an announcement that she fired the commissioner, Dennis White, because of the domestic abuse allegations against him that surfaced because of the Boston Globe investigation. And FYI, this Mayor Janey is not who put him in. The one who put him in right before was Marty Walsh. And Walsh was mayor was the mayor from 2014 to 2021, put this cop in the position and peaced out to become the U.S. Department Labor Secretary. And Ooh. he was there for two years and just left that position to become the executive director of the National Hockey League Players Association, <laughs> which is just like, is this Veep? Like, it's so yeah. funny to me <laughs> just to go from government to uh, hockey. But uh, I guess that, it happens. So Janie is now who put him in. Marty Walsh did, and then Marty pieced. And Marty Walsh said he had no idea about the restraining order. And if he did, he would not have named this guy the commissioner. But White said he did tell Walsh about them. And um, I don't care what either of them said, 
But he explained to Walsh that it was like all false accusations, but that he was like very transparent. Walsh said not transparent. So all this Walsh and white drama back and forth, like if he knew or didn't know, is all published in a a magazine called New Commonwealth. And it's sponsored by a think tank called the Massachusetts Institute. Um, It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank, which is identified as Mass Inc., They call themselves um, journalism at its best and that it's in-depth, balanced, and independent. I just thought I would have... I don't know if it's real or not. Okay. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like... Yeah. Like, I don't know who's paying for it. I don't know. The articles I read... I mean, I used all... You know, you guys can look at our sources, but I did use the Commonwealth a few times. And since it's in Boston, they did get some good interviews. But I thought I would be transparent that I don't know yeah. if Commonwealth is real or is, not. If the, if the Mass Inc. is is a real thing. Okay, yeah. got it. But they are... You know, so did the guy... Did Walsh know or not know? We don't know. But White's attorney released a videotaped affidavit from Frank Mancini, sounds like a noodle, who is the police department's former chief of professional standards. And he confirmed that electronic records show that he accessed White's 1993 and 1999 internal affairs cases in January 2014 when White was promoted. Hmm. The mayor, Janie, said that the allegations eroded the public trust in his judgment and raised serious questions about his fitness to lead the Boston Police Department, according to USA Today. The fact that they didn't take this into account beforehand is just embarrassing and evidence of what how like bad they are at their jobs. Like, you're about to make someone a police commissioner and you... It looks bad if you didn't find all this and it looks bad if you found it and didn't care. Like, I don't know which yeah. one's worse. <laughs> yeah. Like you're detectives. Like, what do you, what do you mean? Yeah, maybe they thought no one else would find it. And then the Boston Globe did, you know, they they rolled the dice. Some people believe that the officer being a black man played a role in the investigation. Also, they say that he was not fully cooperating during the investigation. And he kept hanging out at the police headquarters, even though he was still on administrative leave. He said he only didn't answer questions that were outside the scope of the investigation and questions he found inappropriate. And that's why people think he wasn't fully cooperating. But also, you don't get to choose what questions are appropriate or not, or what the scope is. Like... You're not in charge here, babes. Like, you don't get to fight against the questions. According to Janie, he failed to understand the importance of domestic violence concerns to the public. And he may have intimidated witnesses as well who were already reluctant to speak. Janie is the first Black woman to serve as mayor in Boston, responded to the accusation that the firing had to do with him being a Black man. And this was quoted in the Washington Post. She said, I will not turn a blind eye to domestic violence against Black women or any women for that matter. So I'm on her side. Yeah. The mayor straight up said during the announcement, according to USA Today, it is clear that Dennis White's return as commissioner would send a chilling message to victims of domestic violence in our city. White tried to get Janie removed from the investigation and sought a court order to block her from proceeding with a hearing to dismiss him. He felt entitled to a full judicial hearing um, in Superior Court, but his motions were rejected by a superior court judge and by a justice on the state appeals court. White intends to sue the city for civil rights violations. And he just kept saying, Janie has no authority to terminate me. But it's like, why would Walsh have the authority to hire you, but Janie wouldn't have it to take you off? Like they're both mayors with the same amount of power. He also claimed that Walsh apologized to him 
and said, this is going to cost the city a lot of money if she does this to you. Again, according to the Commonwealth. (laughs) But Walsh was like, peace out. And like I said, he's now working in hockey. He doesn't care. (laughs) So White did try to sue the city. So as of July 2022, a judge has thrown out 11 of the 14 counts in White's lawsuit against the city. The suits that are allowed are allegations of a due process violation, defamation, and right to privacy. The judge, Leo Sorokin, said that White failed to prove that his firing was discriminatory. And I don't know how any of these cases have turned out or if the courts have seen them. I have not found... we got a lot of Boston Boston listeners. You guys let us know if you know what happened to... Yeah, I don't know anything after July 2022. And this is going to your NPRs, your Commonwealths. Yeah. The Boston Heralds. I'm in there. Have not found anything. But it's wild that this all came. I wonder if when it came like a back into the consciousness in 2021, then people thought, oh, this sounds like that SVU episode kind of. But either way, interesting. We can we can always find out from Neil Bear whether we were right or wrong. But it was in, an interesting case. It was. And looking at his photo, I don't, I can't tell. I want to judge him. What makes me not trust him at all is him saying all of this is fake. Deny, deny, deny. But it's like, but then you are admitting that things got physical. Yeah. You did put lay your hands on your niece and your fucking wife. And then, so why are you denying it? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I'm just not, and then like, just not taking any kind of accountability of any sorts. But... Whatever. So that's the case. Nothing and we have here. an incredible guest. I would say one of my favorite guests we've ever had. I had the yes. time of my life with this person. So I really can't wait for you guys Don't to listen. Go anywhere. Our guest today is an actor who's been in some huge titles over the years. You guys may remember from some classic movies such as The Insider, The Negotiator, and Bad Boys. He's also been in iconic television shows like 24 and Aliza and Kara favorite, Dexter. But you know him today as a rapist cop and a frying pan assault victim, Lloyd Andrews. Please enjoy our chat with the lovely Nestor Serrano. Wow. wow, Nestor, we're so excited oh, to have really? you. This is so really? great. We're yes. starting yes. off with a big in, fat you, lie. All right. No, because we've been in two. You've been in our lives for decades. And you've been in two iconic. Okay. Yeah, well, that that may be bad true. boys. Yeah, are you kidding? Your face has been with us yeah. for decades. And two iconic episodes of SBU. I mean, yeah. not just the one we're talking about today. We're going to talk about both, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, but no, this one today is the one where you're the cop in the sort of volatile relationship with no, his that wife. One I remember, and yeah. then. The and other then the other one. one is you're married. You're married to a 16 year old starlet. You're her yeah, manager, baby. or like you're her director. And then it turns out you're married to her, and you're 40, right, and right. she's 16. Yes. Now that one I remember as well. Yeah, yeah. You know that's such a that that whole Law and Order grouping of productions is such a breeding ground for people that are uh, you know going to make it. I mean, if you think about. I was thinking about what, cause I watched it last night in anticipation of this interview and, uh, Amy Carlson, you know, she is so incredibly, and I don't want to, I don't want to come on here and start blowing smoke up people's ass, but she <laughs> is really so talented. I think 
we should all be so unfortunate to end up doing eight seasons on Blue Bloods. But her talent so far exceed that, you know. But her talent is so, I mean, you know, she should be on the big screen doing like, you know, really good stuff. She's incredibly talented. And I got to make out with her. You guys are both really, you guys are, yeah, you're at the end of the episode. You guys are really going to town. <laughs> <You got it. laughs> that might be one of, I can't think of another full on make out in the courtroom. Yeah. <laughs> that might be the only courtroom make out that SVU has had. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, it's just an interesting episode because it's really like, it's not the way that a lot of the episodes of the show are. It's like very... I don't know. It's so interesting. Like, I, I mean, we're seeing both sides. We know your character is like guilty, but it's kind of like the, we see the real like the gray to area. Yeah, the complications. Yeah, and the toxic. The, yeah. Yes. It's very. Of like these. of Very multi-layered, yeah. you know, uh, because on the one hand, when I was thinking, well, how do I justify that I didn't do any uh, research, you know, because after all, I am an actor. <laughs> but the point, the fact is that it's it's an every man or every woman episode. You know, everybody is involved in a relationship and everyone, I imagine everyone has had a toxic relationship where things get, you know, a little heated. And sometimes people have had relationships where things get physically, uh, you know, combative. And so it's something everybody can understand. You know, it, it wasn't like, a rip from the headlines. It was uh, a 40-year-old man with a 16-year-old girl. You know, this is something that a lot of people can go, oh, right. you know, if I didn't do, if it, uh, you know, my brother-in-law is in one of those or my uncle's in one of those. Yeah. And then also just like the, the police, like the whole thing of like you being a police officer and like, are you going to be like, are will you face consequences for everything and how the other cops are backing you up without like, you know, no questions asked and well and you get hit with a frying pan that's yeah kind of fun. well let's start there <laughs> let's How start was that? there so <laughs> i i read that in the script and i said well you know this is of course before cgi or anything like that and i thought well I don't know how they're going to do that. You know, they're going to make, but there's going to be a shot of her throwing it and then a shot of me, like make believe I got hit with it. But no, they came out with a, a rubber. Oh. It was a rubber frying pan, but it, it couldn't be dense enough to like really hurt me if it hit me, which it did. And of course we had to shoot it like, you know, 10 times and she has a pretty good arm. I think she got me about five times. <laughs> so uh, that's a pretty good batting average. And she will, you know, we were probably about 25, 30 feet away from each other. So that's that's not easy to do. And so the rubber had to be heavy enough to, as it took flight, to look like it was a pan, but it couldn't be made out of foam because, that, right. you know, so it was uh, interesting. So I was trying to tell my wife that I'm doing this uh, podcast. And she goes, oh, what episode? And I go, it's the uh, the one where Amy Carlson is, we're in the courtroom and Belzer says, and she goes, wait, wait, are you talking, the frying pan? I go, yes, <laughs> the frying pan. She goes, from now on, just say the frying pan. <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. Yeah. So from now on, Please, that's our code. the frying pan up. There's another show Karen and I love, and you're, you might be our first guest that's been on the slab on Dexter. Oh, yeah. We've had other Dexter people, but not on the slab. Any comments from that? Well, I'll tell you, uh, I can tell you a story about Dexter. 
Yes, please. The woman who played the detective on Dexter, if you're familiar with this, she was the lieutenant on there. La Guerta. Yes. Lauren Velez. Yes. She was my girlfriend for 10 years in real life. We dated when we were little, when we were a lot younger. Wow. We dated for 10 years. No way. Wait, she was just in an episode that we watched. She's in the episode Obscene. She's in the episode that you're in when you date the 16-year-old girl. She's the lawyer for the guy who assaults the 16-year-old. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Our paths oh. have crossed many this times. This is SVU bingo, Dexter <laughs> yeah. bingo. You and Lauren Velez, oh my God, I loved her on that show. Yeah. And so, uh, so we broke up, right? And after we broke up, we had the same manager. And my manager called me up about three months after we broke up. And she said, hey, I got an offer for you. To, to work on this uh, movie with Al Pacino. I've, I'm forgetting the name of it now, but it was a, you know, one of those city by the city, city hall, city hall, I think it was called. And she said, that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is your wife is played by Lauren Velez. And I was like, ah, oh. <laughs> you know, we, uh, even though it was a semi amicable breakup, uh, I, you know, it's not the way I wanted to see her again for the first time. But anyway, right. she's terrific. We had a great time. I, I would drive her home after work every day to, working on that set. She's incredible. But anyway, so cut to Dexter. Uh, I get killed in Dexter. I think it was a two-episode job that I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, she gets killed in Dexter in that same episode. And what we had to do when we're both laying down dead in that what do you call that? It was a like a big dumpster, whatever that was. Yeah, that shipping got. containers. Shipping container, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, we had to lay down. You know, when you're laying in a pool of blood, um, you're not allowed to move because, yeah. you know, the uh, continuity, right? If you get up, you can lay back down. It'll never be the same. And you're going to do a shot and it's not going to match. So we were laying down in the same position next to each other in a puddle of, in puddles of blood. And we held hands while we were um, <laughs> both laying, waiting for the lighting and all that stuff. And we were reminiscing about the old days. It was very sweet. That is so cute. <laughs> oh, my God. And you're probably like, I can't believe this is my life. I'm just like lying in a pool of blood for an hour. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I wish wow. it were an hour. It was many hours. But, oh, many but hours. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't lay down in a pool of blood with anybody else. Oh. <laughs> Wait, but back to SVU, Asunder, your police friends, defending your friends. You have some friends that would have your back? Well, you know, I don't, not anymore, but uh, <laughs> now I have friends that'll just like, they won't even answer my call if I'm in trouble. <laughs> but I had friends back in the day when I was like, you know, in LA and, and pilot seasons and Dean Norris, you know, Dean Norris. Yeah. Yeah. Breaking Bad, right? Breaking Bad, yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Norris and I, we had many late night calls. And Claws. And Claws. I did an episode of Claws. And so. you did an episode of Claws where you were Quiet Ann's dad. And we have had Judy Reyes on our podcast. She, Quiet right. Ann has been right. on our podcast. And, and you played her dad, which is, uh -huh. I love a full yeah, circle moment. Turned out to be gay. <laughs> yeah. 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 So Dean Norris and I, uh, you know, I, I would spend, uh, I, I met him when I was doing American uh, repertory theater in Harvard and he was a student there and we became really close. And then I came out to LA and I was doing a movie 
Lethal Weapon 2. And all of a sudden there's a knock on my door and I open it up and there was Dean. And he's like, hey, I'm in this fucking movie too. Because he can't, <laughs> he can't say anything without a curse word. So he's like, hey, motherfucker, I'm in this fucking movie with you, you fucking. Anyway, we had a blast doing that. And then, uh, you know, I would go out there for pilot season when I, I was still in New York at that time. And I'd fly out to pilot season and hang out with him and get, man, we just got, just like every night we would go out until all hours of the night. We owned the bar. We would, it was, it was mayhem. It was such a great time. And then, you know, at some point somebody would get a call. One of us would get a call from the other one's agent and go, well, uh, we're going to have to bail the other guy out. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. There were calls like that. Oh my gosh. So that was a lot of fun. And and we always had each other's back. And there were there was a crew of us. There were probably about six or seven of us. But nowadays, like uh, you know, if I no, nobody's looking watching my back anymore. <laughs> Those days are over. The guys who would watch my back, with the exception of Dean, are either still in jail or dead. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that is so funny. Did you know Christopher Maloney or Ice T? Like, did you know any or Hargitay? Did you know any of the actors going in? No. When I got in to do that episode, I had just finished doing uh, or had just released a movie I uh, called uh, The Insider, and Mariska was so impressed, and then Chris was too. But Mariska was like, "Oh my god." That's like the best movie I have ever seen. It's so <laughs> incredible. You know, Russell Crowe is in it, Al Pacino and all. It's a huge cast and I have a small part in it, but they were very impressed. And they were so happy together. You know, they were skipping around and everybody was so, you know, like uh, in between takes, you'd hear Mariska say to Chris, so are you going to the gym in the morning? Yeah, I think I'm going to go. Are you going to go? Yeah. Why don't we go together? <laughs> okay, let's do that. <laughs> And then I went back about two years, three years later, and it was a slightly different vibe. Because uh, <laughs> you were there for like, you were there for like, not like the honeymoon, but like kind of the beginning, yeah, like yeah. the sweet, like, oh, they like were, they, it, it was the second season. Yeah. They were probably just like, we got another season. We're rocking oh, and rolling, you know? They were so, and, then, and Chris was, Chris was super cool. Uh, so was, everybody was super cool. And, and Ice tea. You know, because you guys do this for a living, but when you make somebody like belly laugh, it sticks, <laughs> it hits you, right? It, it's kind of like sends a little dopamine in your brain. And you're like, oh my God, I just made that person like really crack up. And I, you know, I told a joke on set and Ice-T was just like on the floor. And I was like, oh shit, that was cool. That's awesome. And I, I bet, wish- and I bet making Ice-T laugh is... More fun than the regular person, too. I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, he uh, he 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 was incredible. Everybody there was so incredible. They really were. And I don't. Again, I hate the idea of like just talking people up for being. But you know, I, on a on a sour note, you know, losing Richard uh, was so I know. so sad. Uh, I met him. Uh, I I think he was a regular member of the Friars Club. And uh, we were on a dais together one time and it just, it's just so sad to have lost him. Yeah, we were really, I mean, we didn't know him personally, of course, but like just the character, the actor, such a great, such a important yeah, person. Yeah, his character people. was terrific, but him, you know, his, him as a, as a person was just so yeah. gracious and 
That's what everybody, like, he just seems like he lived a good life. He used to live near me on the Upper West Side and I would see him with his dogs on my corner at this cafe, but I never wanted to bother him. And I'm I'm happy I didn't, but I wish I could have met him one time. (laughs) You know, in in life, you, you, uh, and the busier you are, the more people you meet. You know, when you go on set, sometimes you can meet 150 people in a day. And, uh, you know, you'll meet 20 actors in a day and you're doing a a 22 episodes a year and you'll meet a thousand actors. And for him to, you know, single me out and remember me, uh, you know, two years after we had worked together uh, again at the Friars Club, I thought was uh, was a testament to his his humanity, you know, his ability to, to, to connect with people in a way that's profound. You know, as opposed to the kind of glossy, hey, how you doing? Hey, whatever you know. Hey, champ. Hey, sport. Uh, he 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 was a, a, a wonderful person. Yeah, that's really good to hear. We hear it from, we've heard it from a couple people. That's and- just like such a thoughtful thing to say about someone too. You know, that's like a very specific compliment. Of a person, yeah. Well, the, you, because I you you bump into so many people. There are a few people that uh, you know. Tom Hanks is another one that was like that with me. Uh, it it it's just so easy to just kind of like give a uh, a casual, hey, yeah, how you doing? Nice to see you again. And the, they really don't know who you are. You know, they they've forgotten who you are. But uh, in the case of uh, Belzer and Hanks and Smith, Will Smith is like that. And and I bring up those big names, not to be a name dropper, but because these guys are so big in what they do and they meet so many people that it becomes easier to, you know, lose the tree for the forest. Yeah, that's like what we we always hear about Mariska Hargitay. Like she's been number one on this show for like 24 years and everybody says how gracious and lovely she is and she doesn't have, like, she doesn't have to be. Or And somebody was just saying the same thing about Tom Hanks to me. Who was it? Oh, Michael Chernus. Yeah. Yes. He was saying, yeah, he was saying like that, yeah, he did this movie with Tom Hanks and that Tom Hanks is But like he so also great just and- said that about Will Smith too. It was about the both of them. Yeah. That's wild. That yeah, was just wh- last week. If you know the guys, I don't know if you do, but if you know both of those guys, you wouldn't no, be so shocked. No, we don't shocked. know them. <laughs> we don't. Because we don't. They, they really are incredibly, I mean, you know, unfortunately things have changed uh, for Will since uh, the last, uh, yeah. since the Chris Rock slap. But mm-hmm. uh, they, they, you know, Tom Hanks, everything you've heard about him is absolutely, you know, true. He's just one of the kindest, gentlest, sweetest, I worked with him in the first movie I ever did. I did The Money Pit. The Money Yeah, The Money I Pit. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that on your IMDb and I was like, I remember watching that movie as a kid for sure. And I was like a huge Shelley Long fan too. Okay. Huge. Yeah, yeah. She was a pain in the ass. But that's another story. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I was the guy wearing shower cap. But anyway, um, so, <laughs> so Tom and I worked together in that for like a minute. You know, I was on a, a small part. And then I'm doing a Broadway show and he comes knocking at my door. Now, this is right after, I mean, the Money Pit had just aired, uh, been released. And he was still, you know, kind of like a, he knocked on my dressing room door with Rita Wilson and he goes, hey, Nestor, I saw you on the, 
on the pay on the uh, playbill. And I said, Oh my God, that's Nestor. He was a, so he, you know, would you mind introducing me to Robert De Niro? I said, no. And then I go to LA and I'm doing a play in LA and coincidentally he goes to see that play. And then he says, Nestor, this is a, this is more than a coincidence. We got to hang out. So I'm hanging out with Tom Hanks at his house. And, uh, so John Lovitz, a couple of other guys from Saturday Night Live there and some producers and, it was just so great. And we hung out a few times. And so that was the end of that. And then like 25 years later, my wife and I are walking down uh, 8th Avenue, right around 13th Street. And it was a cold, blistery day. And we're all bundled up. And there's very few people on the street. And we pass this group of people. And my wife says, I think that was Tom Hanks. And I turn around and Tom Hanks had stopped. And he was like, trying to figure it out. And he goes, Nestor Serrano, how you doing? And it was him with Colin and his two other younger boys. And we talked for a while, but you know, 25 years later, it was amazing. It was just amazing. Anyway. I love these stories, by the way, you never have to worry about name dropping with the two of us. We will hear it all day long. We love it. Yeah. (laughs) But he's everything. He's everything you'd ever, you know, the, all the, the stories everybody says, oh, he's like the best, but he really is. A, a, and I can't and, believe and, you're the person that introduced Tom Hanks to De Niro. Yeah, right, right. You're, that's, a, that's a big moment. It, well, <laughs> you know, again, Tom was uh, just up and coming. And if you would have seen the, the, the line of people that were lined up to see Robert De Niro after the show, it was like, uh, like uh, Don Corleone on his daughter's wedding. Uh, you know, they, everybody just wanted to kiss De Niro's ring. And from Chris Walken, Martin Scorsese, Dustin Hoffman, Robin Williams, a line, Meryl Streep, Robert Duvall, everybody would line up. And so, you know, poor Tom, he was just a kid who had done Bachelor Party and this new movie, The Money Pit. And so he needed a little help. Yeah. <laughs> so I hooked the brother up. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Is there um a part in a show that you would love to play still, like in a theater production? I'd like to go back to doing classical theater, which is one of the things that I would, I always enjoyed doing classical. Uh, one of my pride and joys was playing Patrick Stewart's brother in uh, Tempest on Broadway. And oh, wow. it was, you know, I... Uh, being on stage with Robert De Niro was terrific. And I love that character that I played. Such a fun character. But to be on stage doing Shakespeare, it's, you know, it's, I, I, I can't imagine any theatrical actor that wouldn't, you know, chomping at the bit to do something like that. And I, I did a lot of that when I was a kid. That's how I got rid of my New York accent, right? I don't got a New York accent, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, I was going to say, when you and Patrick Stewart were brothers, who had to talk like who? Did you have to do kind of a Patrick Stewart sound or did he have to talk a little bit more? (laughs) No, well, you know, one of the great things about theater uh, is that uh, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to make so much sense because, you know, and especially now, I mean, that was a while ago. Now you can have uh, two brothers and one guy's, uh, you know, Asian and the other guy's black and you, you buy it. But no, I, a quick story on that. Liev Schreiber was playing and I were working together in a scene there. 
And it was a really great scene that we were doing. And even though everybody else is on, all the members of the court are on stage, it was just Liev and I. And at the time I was smoking cigars. And so we were doing a table reading and my cigar wasn't lit, but I'm toying with it, you know, while I'm talking to him. And the scene is so sneaky, you know, like we're, we're inspiring. And I got into this thing where I started to think, you know, this is almost like two gangsters, you know? And so I'm doing this thing and I'm talking to him, Liev, and I'm doing this whole thing like this, but I'm doing Elizabethan words, but I'm talking like this. It's just kind of like, it wasn't a, it wasn't an act. It just kind of like felt right. It felt organic. And I knew we weren't going to do it that way. But at one point, the director had uh, dialect coaches come in and they heard me doing that. And I got sent to dialect school. And Liev was like, he'd make fun of me because he didn't get sent <laughs> to it, but I did. I didn't have to do it. I was playing up that character, but I, I ended up getting into trouble. Yeah. <laughs> I got sent to dialect school. But Patrick and I never really had any scenes together. So even though, you know, my, my mid-Atlantic, which is what they call non-standard uh, uh, American English, is such that if you were, if we were talking to each other and you listened carefully, you might notice that I don't have a British accent and he did, but it wasn't noticeable enough that it would have, uh, you know, made anybody's ears perk up. Right. Well, and especially reading but going, Shakespeare. Going back to doing uh, classical theater was, uh, I, I'm seriously thinking about maybe uh, hanging up my film and TV shoes and, and doing some theater here locally. There's some good theater in Baltimore. Um, this was awesome. Thank, and we got so much from you for this. This is going to be great. You. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. This was wonderful. It was my pleasure. Obsessed with him and everything he stands for. Yeah, he he is fun. I like I want to I want to go to his house in his weird gaudy office. <laughs> you guys and have some. I'll. I mean, he's not drinking. He's but not drinking anymore. But like, we could do something. We talked to him for over an hour. Like he was really. We we wish we could. But the whole interview about you guys would probably be like that's too much. But uh, he I didn't want to stop to talk to. Yes, yeah. he was fun. He was cool. He you know. Just had his head on straight. I don't know. I'm obsessed. Yeah. I would say top 10 guest. No offense yeah. to our guests who didn't make the cut. <laughs> oh, also, I did remember something that maybe could have gone in the intro. Not a full postmortem. So, you know, I was working on something where the AD was being a bitch. And yes. I told you about that. Yes. So I went to, I saw someone else who had a part in the movie and before I said anything, they started talking about how the AD was an awful bitch to them. Of course. I mean, it's, it's like... Just, uh, I think she just likes to go after the people that are there for a few days having a great time. And she... Because she can't take it out on anyone else. Yeah. You can't take, go after the stars or like the no. director. So, yeah. But I was like, oh, great to hear that she's out there bullying everybody. So oh. that was just nice. Well, that's kind of some of the tea I was getting as well from the person in the picket line, but I can't talk about it. I'll have to tell you off mic. But about the AD? No, about a person about another person in a high up position at a television show acting like an asshole. And I was like, it's such a shame because I feel like people, it doesn't take that much to be nice. Like it really doesn't. 
No, no. I think they like being me. I mean, I think she like enjoys it. I think it's part of her daily um, mantras of like, I can't wait to ruin a young person's <laughs> life who's so excited. <laughs> like, I think she gets off on it. Honestly, you got to watch beef. Some people are angry fucks. Yeah. Oh, no. That's like what I feel like beef is tapping into is like the anger. Oh, my gosh. It's um, so twisted and good. Also, oh, Summer House. I know you don't watch the seasonal homes, but the four, <laughs> like, the you know how we went into Vanderpump knowing there's a cheating thing? We yes. went into Summer House knowing a friendship breaks. Yes. An eight-year friendship between Lindsay and Danielle breaks off. And this week, this most recent episode, we're in the time machine, but it finally came to a head because Lindsay's a lunatic. So the whole time before it starts and watch what happens, all the evidence were like, can't wait to see what Lindsay's crazy ass did. It's truly Danielle. Danielle is a menace this season. It is shocking. And basically it all, like the friendship ending thing happened this week. Yeah, uh, my friend was telling me about this yesterday. Our friend, our friend. It's really nuts. So what did did our friend say? She said, yeah. She was like, yeah. And at the end, it's like, wow, Danielle, bad look. Like, she looks terrible. Like, she agreed with you, basically what you just said. Yeah, because I understand Danielle's feelings. She could be feeling left out. Her friends changed. Lindsay's about for Like, she could be feeling lots of things. Her relationship's on the rocks. They're not broken up. Like, you can feel all those things. But basically, like, Lindsay gets engaged. And Danielle makes it all about her. Starts screaming. Like, Kyle gets the group together going, Hey, guys, Carl just proposed to Lindsay. We're all going to this bar. He has all her family and friends flew in. Let's party this engagement. And Danielle goes, Are you fucking kidding me? This is fucked up. Why did nobody tell me? I can't believe nobody told me. And start, like all the younger people are like, they don't. Wow. their faces are in shock. No one knows how to react because everyone's like, Yay, they're engaged. And why would anyone include you when Carl said he was shopping for rings? She picked up a pillow and screamed into the pillow. And she said that their relationship is weird, that it's moving too fast and has all these judgments. So then to also want to be included in the planning is nuts. So she's screaming, crying, finally gets it together to go to this party. And you would think as an adult, and it's not about you. My friends are engaged. I'm going to say congrats, yeah. smile, and cry later. She goes up to every single person at the party and goes, so when did you find out? Oh, okay, well, I just found out, so I'm pretty fucking pissed. Oh, my God. And so Lindsay's best friend was like, well, I had to know ahead of time because I had to fly here. Yeah. So, yeah, I needed to make arrangements. And she keeps going, and the, the friend is like, you need to stop. This is Lindsay's happiest day of her life. This isn't about you. You need to shut your fucking mouth. And, like, Lindsay comes in, hugs her stepdad or her dad, and, like, they're crying. And it's this, like, beautiful moment. And Danielle is just crying, screaming, making it all about her. Psycho. I mean, that's, like, that's, like, narcissism hardcore. It's, it's, but she's not, I don't think she is. I get what she's feeling inside, but it's, like, you are raised wrong. You are raised wrong. But how old is she? Is she, like, 22? No, they're in their 30s. They're all yeah, in their 30s. Yeah, like, that's crazy. That behavior is crazy. Yeah. I also heard there's a new Trinity grad on the show. Yes, there are, yeah, Gabby I is looked her Trinity. Up. I looked her up. Let me just say we did not overlap. <laughs> she is a much more recent graduate than me. Yeah, Kyle's your year, right? Kyle's like the year right below me, but we're like the same age because I'm young for my grade. That's okay. the only thing I'm young for. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, so I know this is kind of, you know, if you're not watching Summer House, that might have been too much, but it's just like going into the season, you're like, because Danielle is, so, but also 
it's like you don't have to be friends with Lindsay, but you want to be because you want to be on the show. Yeah. Like she was always just like Lindsay's friend who is calm and boring. Right. And now that Lindsay has like a partner she's excited about, Danielle just can't handle it. And she keeps being like, I was there for you when everything was shitty. And it's like, yeah, there are friends who only like when you're in the dumps. And once you're doing well, they can't celebrate you. Yes. And Robert and her moved in together after two. Like, she's being a hypocrite this whole time and talking shit about Lindsay to the other girls in the house who don't like her. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I know you're saying that she's not a narcissist and that's very possible, but like, I do think that in moments like this, people really show their true colors. Like, when this is like, this is so above and beyond. Like, the way that like, People you need will, to watch it. When, it I'm when not someone even is acting like a when someone's a bridesmaid in someone's wedding and acts crazy, when someone's like planning someone's baby shower and acts crazy, it's like these are this is someone else's moment that you're fully commandeering. Like I don't know, that's something you got to look inward about. That's wild. It's just not about you. Like fight later. So yeah. then, Lindsay, so the next week, and they all go in. It's the last weekend of the house, and Lindsay goes. Not only are we no longer best friends, we are no longer friends. She goes every single. Per- she went up to every single person at the engagement party and was like, "Well, I'm pissed." No one told me. I wasn't even part of the planning. Can you believe it? You have to like like, her friends that flew in for this engagement party. Why would you be part of the planning if you've been talking shit on this couple since they like got together? Like, why would they ever include you when you're like, your relationship's weird? Why didn't you ask me to plan your engagement? So weird. Yeah, and then her boyfriend's like, I texted congrats and Carl didn't even respond. And then Carl's like, I got 400. I just got engaged. Yeah. I, I, you know, like it's, it's appalling, but because going into the season, they were asking like, who's going to have the most to, you know, own up to at the, or answer to at the reunion. And everyone kept saying Danielle. And I was like, how is this going to happen? Because Lindsay is unhinged. <laughs> so I was like, what is going to happen? And it's boo Danielle. Like, it is so fucked. It's wild how much I know about the show not watching it. Like, I know what these people look like. I know, I know. you're talking, I know who you're talking about. Hubhouse. I vaguely know the story. Well, because also once Lindsay, they had a talk and once Danielle was like, I feel like I've lost my friends. You don't pay attention to me. My life is hard right now. Lindsay hugs her immediately and goes, I'm so sorry. I love you so much. I'm going to try to call you more. I'm going to be a better friend because Lindsay is a bad friend. Yeah. But you can't do that at someone's engagement party. No, no. You she's have try- to watch I mean, her she's- blow out. You have to watch it. Okay, I'll watch it. I'll watch it. Honestly, I'll go, I'll go in my house and watch it right like right after we're done. I really will. <laughs> I just don't know how she thought that she wasn't going to be the bad guy after. Hey, Carl's proposing right now. We're all going to meet him at the bar. Are you fucking kidding me? This is so fucked up. That's how she reacted. Because she's not thinking about anybody but herself. Like truly, yeah. like she's the victim. And like, that's the only reason I bring up narcissism because in nar- malignant narcissists are always the victim. It's always about them and like what people are doing to them. So that's why I brought that up. But wow. Okay. I'm going to check it out. But what did we learn here? Asunder domestic violence is bad. Yeah. But this episode is wild because they really were trying to show a lot of he said, she said, I feel like of it all. Like we, we already mentioned this, but ultimately this was an abusive relationship and he was an abuser and a gaslighter and he would like you shouldn't throw frying pans at people, but I think this man was traumatizing his wife. Um, and I, I mean, I can't deny, loved a court makeout scene. Not gonna <laughs> lie, that was a highlight of this episode for me. Yeah, yeah, I did see on Instagram it was like a you know a TikTok whatever. I need help, but 
Um, it said, like, what was the final thing he said that made you know that you had to leave? And so I read hundreds of comments and people are getting abused. It's like fucked. My friend who listens to the podcast just posted today that her cleaning lady of five years was just killed in a domestic violence incident. But, and she's like, I knew her. I knew a little bit about her family. She was so amazing. She like knew about my family. And, but I didn't know she had this abusive ex-boyfriend and now she's gone. It's just so like, it's so fucked up. Like that men are just constantly a threat to women at all times. And it made me really sad, but yeah. Maybe- and instead of like getting behind and like helping out, they're like, it's not all of us, but then it is. Yeah. There were, by the time I looked at this post, there were over 4,000 comments and all of them were just like horrific, horrific things. Yeah. Yeah. It was really wild. Yeah, and they, I mean, the new season of, the new season of um, SVU, I just watched the episode where Betty Buckley is, you know, the- It's not a good episode. I know, but she's like the special, uh, like, uh, whatever her role is. She's like the boss of Carisi and everybody in the SVU, um, higher up, like, uh, the law part, like, the order part of it. And she, like- they talk about her beat. She has been in an abusive relationship. And I think that's why she kind of lets that motherfucker like go. If you've seen the episode, you know what I'm talking about. But let's move on. This this segues actually perfectly into our What Would Sister Peg Do for this week? That's This is our weekly segment where we direct you towards an organization, a blog post, a podcast episode, something to give you more info about what we talked about today. And as always, the Domestic Violence National Hotline is there. But this week, I wanted to ha- point you to Pandora's Project, which is an organization that is a, uh, quote, a nonprofit dedicated to providing support and resources to survivors of rape and sexual abuse and their friends and family. And something I liked about Pandora's project is some people might be hesitant to like pick up the phone and actually talk to someone about what's going on with them. And they have an online support group called Pandora's Aquarium. And they just said, we believe that connecting with other rape and sexual abuse survivors is an important part of healing. So I just thought that was like a great way that people can sort of ease into just going on these forums, seeing what other people are saying, seeing if what they're experiencing, if that resonates with like what if what they're reading resonates with their own experience. So the website is pandies.org, P-A-N-D-Y-S.org. And um, that takes you to Pandora's Aquarium and some other resources as well. And you can donate. So that will be, as always, in a story on the day of our uh, show release. It will be in a story on our Instagram, which is That's Messed Up Pod. And it will always be saved in our story highlights, WWSPD. Thank you so much for that. And next week, on a lighter note, I mean, still rape, but an episode (laughs) we've been very excited to do. Comic Perversion, Season 15, Episode 15. The Inside Baseball episode you've been waiting for. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I keep telling comics to watch it. Like, I wonder if we should do a giant viewing. A screening. A screening. Let's get a club to let us do it. (laughs) Invite our guests. You guys are going to die. And then have comics watch it. But a lot of them know about the case because I've been bringing it up. Like, that we cover too. Interesting. A lot of them know. Whatever. I can't wait. We'll see you next week. See you next time, bitches. (laughs) Bye, guys.
That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmessedappod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at That's Messed Up Pod and on Twitter at Messed Up Pod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Casey O'Brien. And to our mixer, John Bradley, and our guest booker, Patrick Kotner. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstar, Karen Kilgariff, Daniel Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun, dun! dun. <laughs> Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.